Mr. Goldsmith, if you please. Hello, and welcome to the Goldsmith Odyssey, our chronological journey through the works of composer Jerry Goldsmith. I'm Jens. I'm Clark. I'm David. And I'm Yavar, and I'm so excited to be here with all of you to celebrate our fifth anniversary as a podcast with our 40th regular episode. Clark, you made an excellent suggestion that we cover a radio score for this, and Yen selected the Security Agent episode of CBS Suspense among the possibilities I floated. And then after we cover that, we will hopefully have time to reminisce about the past five years of the Goldsmith Odyssey. Uh, because it's been five years, at least as we record. And we're going to bring back the mailbag section, which we haven't done in quite a while, for a really nice insight about the burbs that we were emailed from composer Cameron Patrick. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, David, why don't you give us some background on this series? Because we've never covered an episode of CBS Suspense before. Right. Uh, CBS Suspense, one of their many radio programs, they were kings of radio and kings of television until the early 70s. CBS was kind of the network. The show started in 1940 and ran 22 years. Wow. Yeah, the first episode was an adaptation of Alfred Hitchcock's The Lodger. It was introduced by Hitchcock and featured two stars from the then forthcoming movie Foreign Correspondent with an eye towards actually using it as kind of a promotion for Foreign Correspondent. One of the people behind the series was hoping that it would basically be a series of adaptations of Hitchcock's pictures with him hosting, but it did not wound up playing out that way. And in that 22 years, what you had was segments in years of the shows that would have different producers who were often also the directors of each episode. So during the time period when Goldsmith did some scores for Suspense, Anthony Ellis was the producer-director. He started as a performer, as a radio performer. He showed a talent for writing. I think at some point they needed some lines. He threw out some lines, and then he was offered to write an episode, and became a writer. Uh, He moved into directing. He was in charge of suspense for CBS, producing and directing from 1954 to 1956. He created Frontier Gentleman because he was an Englishman in America. So that worked for him. Hmm. Yeah, but he barely made a lot of our cast. They start in radio, they hit television, they hit film. I mean, they all cover that zone where all three mediums were in play. Uh, He really barely made it to TV. He passed away in 1967. And one of his two TV credits is that he produced the series Black Saddle. And uh, outside of radio and that, he has no other Goldsmith connections. And and is he the friend that Jerry had that he he was doing the favor for on Black Saddle? I can't remember, but I think he might have said Tony Ellis was the friend that he did the favor for. We have to check that Burlingame interview. And... Is that because the producer was a friend? Yeah, Tony, Tony Tony Ellis was a close friend, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Explains him collaborating on both of his CBS shows. Yeah, exactly. And as far as we know, is this their earliest collaboration? I think this is the earliest CBS suspense episode we know of Jerry scoring. I don't have the list in front of me, and of course, we're not doing them quite in sequence. We just picked one out of a hat. Yeah. 
The other two are that we know about that we have are the prophecy of Bertha Abbott from uh-huh. October 16th, 1956, mm-hmm. and then Eyewitness, which is that prison break one from December 16th of 1956. This one was September 5th. So there we go. So as far as the cast goes, I've got a few names. They have pretty similar careers, starting in radio, then doing film, and then doing television with some overlap. First name is Parley Bear, who played Mayor Stoner in The Andy Griffith Show, if you're looking for a face and a voice. He was a radio and character actor playing, by the way, Chester in the Gunsmoke radio program, one of our favorite characters from the television show. He got into films in 1950, appearing on screen for the final time in a 1996 episode of Star Trek Voyager. He was also in the very first series for that Jerry wrote a, a theme for, which is Black Saddle. He was in an episode of Black Saddle. So it's kind of funny that in the first decade of his career, he's in Jerry's first series with a Goldsmith theme. And then at the end of his career, he's in Jerry's last series. So that's kind of a neat thing. And he was also in The Spiral Road. So he's our main character, Frederick Jolanko. But his best friend in this, Joseph Ostrovsky, is played by Howard McNear. Speaking of connections to The Andy Griffith Show, he's Floyd the Barber on that. Mm-hmm. He's a very familiar voice, very distinctive voice. Right. And it's pretty obvious to tell that it's him. He also originated the character of Doc Adams in the radio version of Gunsmoke. Oh, wow. Yeah. And there are no other TV or film Goldsmith connections for Howard McNear. You know, I've got nothing for Harry Bartell. Harry Bartell had a similar radio, movies, TV career, and no other Goldsmith connections, really. And I don't know that we're certain who he plays. The Amazing Colossal Man's Larry Thor had his own radio drama production company in Canada before coming to America. He plays a voice in this. We'll meet him again in Torah, 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 if we notice his uncredited role. Uh, He is also in Zero Hour, the serious film whose script was purchased and transformed into the movie Airplane, which leads us to Airplane 2, the sequels, John Daner. (laughs) Do you guys want to talk about John Daner since you know him? Nice guy. He's got a good voice. Now starring John Daner. This is the story of J.B. Kendall, Frontier Gentleman. The journey had taken 98 days from St. Louis. I had come by riverboat up the Missouri the little sternwheeler climbing, churning, scuttling over 2,000 miles of sandbar and rapid. Then into the lonely wastes of another, swifter stream, the Yellowstone, until we finally docked at South Sunday in Montana Territory. My ticket had cost $300, which left me about 50 in my pocket, and the slim hope that there would be a letter at the express office with my remittance from England. Uh, He was just in a, a lot of things in that era, I saw him on the Disney Zorro. He's like in the first storyline in that. He plays a viceroy. That's right. And yeah, and he's uh, he's in a great episode of the Andy Griffith Show where he plays kind of a con man. Hmm. Mark it well, my friends. Colonel Harvey's Indian elixir. My mission in life is health, is zest, is vigor, is the joy of living. Now, what I offer you, my friends, is no medicine. It is far more than that. It is a tonic. An elixir to purge the body and lift the spirits, to put a light in the eye and a spring in the step, a lilt in the voice and hope in the human heart. 
Breathes there a man with soul so dead he can say he is not interested? I'll take two. Ah, there speaks someone in whom the spark is not dead. Are there others? Step forward, please. I'll I'll take take one. One for the lady. He's sort of wooing Aunt B, and he's a really entertaining character in that. So, yeah, aside from Frontier Gentleman, he's really good at playing very different characters and kind of being a chameleon, especially on the radio. I think he he fits in, but he's the narrator on this, so he just kind of right. gets to do a straight narration. He's one of those guys. Folks, Google him. You'll see his face, and you'll be like, oh, yeah, of course. I mean, uh, he's the judge in Jagged Edge in the 80s. I mean, he goes that far into having full roles. We are going to see him again when we cover The Boys from Brazil. Hmm. Now, as far as the music goes, suspense, like a lot of CBS shows, you know, Escape. You'll hear that Jerry Goldsmith scored Escape. You'll hear Jerry Goldsmith say he scored an Escape. But let me tell you, I've gone through all of them. And very few of those don't have a music credit. And he is never mentioned. That is Leith Stevens' show for a while, and then it hands over to somebody else. CBS generally had a composer or two who were assigned to a show, and then occasionally somebody would guest. And for the two years or so, and I bracketed it, that Goldsmith did suspense. I went through the episodes, listened to the credits, and it was generally Wilbur Hatch or... Lucien Marowick, conducted by Wilbur Hatch, or Rene Garagonk, conducted by Wilbur Hatch. And then you'd have spotty episodes here, one by Fred Steiner, one by Leith Stevens, a couple by Lynn Murray, one by Amerigo Marino. And those guys may have stretched past Goldsmith's zone, which is about two years. We know at least that Bernard Herrmann did a number of them because uh, Bill Robel shared one called The Hitchhiker with us that he did all the music for. And then at the end of this episode... We're informed that Alex North did special music for the coming week's episode, The Hither and Thither of Danny Dither. Right. The fact that you meet all of your responsibilities as an adult will in no way keep you from enjoying the magic and charm of fantasies like The Hither and Thither of Danny Dither. Written originally as a children's opera, The Hither and Thither of Danny Dither is graced with music by Alex North and tells what happens when an efficiency expert decides to streamline heaven. So much early Goldsmith is influenced by Alex North and Bernard Herrmann, so they were both on this. Yeah, Herrmann was obviously, Herrmann was early. I mean, the show started in 1940, and Herrmann composed some episodes back then. I believe The Lodger, the first one, and the theme is Herrmann's. Yeah, we know that thanks to a confirmation from Bill Robel, friend of the show. Uh, he sent us a longer version of it on that episode, The Hitchhiker, where we can hear the extended composition compared to the short version on this. And not only that, but sent us some photos of the sheet music with Bernard Herrmann's signature right up there at the top. So if there was any doubt, that sealed it. Come in. Welcome. I'm E.G. Marshall. The fates, they say, weave the pattern of our lives. Some there are who believe that whatever happens to us is destined so to be, while others talk of free will. However it may be, I just remembered there's also a closing theme to the series, which is a march, which we hear on this episode. America listens most to the CBS Radio Network.
which I don't I don't know if it ran the whole length of the series. No, apparently that that got added in the 1950s. Okay, Bill Robo was pretty sure that Bernard Herrmann didn't write that. But I mean, who knows if one of our listeners knows, please write us and and let us know who wrote the march because we'd like to know mail at goldsmithodyssey.com. Yeah. Um, But the point is that during this time period, it really was mostly Lucien and Renee, occasionally Wilbur, Wilbur conducting for all three of them. And then the odd guest star when somebody was on vacation or got sick or who knows what. And Goldsmith filled in. And if we have this as his first suspense, it's possible this was his first favor for his friend Anthony Ellis or how they met Mm. coming in to do this particular episode. It's worth maybe pointing out that this is episode 665 of the series. So they were churning these out for for all of those years. Well, the one thing I wanted to say, too, about suspense uh, that I think makes it kind of interesting among radio anthology shows is that with that title, they were actually able to cover a fair amount of range. Uh, so some suspense episodes, you've got monsters, you've got ghosts, you've got supernatural horror. Others, you've got murder mystery thrillers. And then others, you've got something closer to this episode, which is more of a drama with some elements of suspense and tension in it. So as radio anthologies went, suspense could cover some pretty broad territory over the course of that long run. And the adaptation direction was reversed from what is normal. You know, you'll hear a lot of Lux Radio Theater and Hollywood programs, which are hour-long radio dramas of movies that are in release. You know, they pop up on Criterion discs. In this case, it went the other way, similar to live television going to film. Things like Donovan's Brain was suspense before it was a B-movie. Sorry, Wrong Number was such a popular suspense episode that Agnes Moorhead, I want to say... It's in the neighborhood of 10, but I think the count is 11. I think she did Sorry Wrong Number 11 separate times. And the reason I have a sense of that is I grew up with one, and it took me a while to find it. Her seventh performance is actually my favorite. I have a favorite (laughs) version of her Sorry Wrong Number, but it was so big on suspense that they did it every year or two. They just would redo it with her doing it live again. So yeah, it was really a big, big deal. It makes sense that there is a book about this radio program mm. specifically because it it is for radio, not in terms of prestige, but in terms of stature, what Playhouse 90 was. You know, it was a real anchor of the medium. So today's episode is called The Security Agent. It's really a pretty good one, I think. And Clark, do you want to tell us what it's about? What happens? Well, before you do, folks, you can go find the episode on archive.org for free to listen to before Clark spoils it, because he's going to tell the whole plot in his synopsis right now. And we'll put a link to it in our show notes. All right. So I'm assuming this is 29 minutes later, and our listeners have just listened to this episode, and now I can remind them of what they just heard. Our story takes place in Krakow, Poland, circa 1956. A state buswork superintendent named Frederick Zielonko, played by Parley Bear, has concocted a plan to flee his home country, which has become a communist police state. He attempts to persuade his best friend Joseph Ostrovsky, played by Howard McNear, to join him, but Joseph is extremely hesitant. However, Frederick has a plan. He's taking a work-related trip to a mechanical exhibition in Prague, a country which poses its own dangers, but Frederick plans to reroute the plane to Austria and start a new life there. Frederick's manager, Corjun, played by Herb Butterfield, I'm pretty sure, but we can't be 100% certain since the credits don't 
clarify that, says that an official member of the Communist Party will need to accompany Frederick on the trip. The party member selected is Vladimir Haleski, who is played, I think, by Harry Bartel, and fortuitously, he too is eager to flee Poland. Given this information, Joseph reluctantly agrees to go along with the idea. The plan is set into motion, but there are two last-minute complications. First, Korjun decides to tag along on the trip. Second, it's rumored that a state security agent is on board the plane, but they have no idea who it could be. Mid-flight, the truth is revealed. Joseph is the security agent, and went along to try and keep his friend out of trouble. There's a tussle, Joseph gets shot, and the plane is successfully rerouted to Austria. Three weeks later, Frederick visits Joseph in a Vienna hospital. Joseph reveals that he plans to return to Poland and face whatever consequences await him. Frederick urges Joseph to stay in Austria, and Joseph agrees to think about it. And that's the plot of The Security Agent. Uh, Clark, why don't you also tell us about some of the recurring ideas you picked up on in this score? Okay, well, there's not a ton of recurring ideas in this score. The main one is this long-lined kind of anthemic idea that seemed, when I first listened to it, to suggest a sense of patriotism or national identity. given the nature of this story, it frequently feels troubled or is surrounded by elements that suggest tension or anxiety. And as I was typing my notes up and talking about how kind of anthemic, semi-patriotic it felt, I decided, um, well, maybe I should just go take a listen to the Polish national anthem and see what that sounds like and whether this is anywhere in the same kind of territory. And to my astonishment, uh, this theme is a variation on the Polish national anthem. It's a minor key version of their anthem, which I, I can't even begin to pronounce this correctly, but uh, Majorak Dabroskigo, I have no idea if that's right, but it translates as Poland is not yet lost. It sounds pretty different in its traditional form. It's much more upbeat and positive, as most anthems are. But Goldsmith really takes it in some very different directions and kind of makes it his own with what he does in this score. <laughs> I mean, I always just assumed it was an original Goldsmith theme. I've, I've been listening to this episode because it's been one of my favorite Goldsmith scored radio things for years and it never occurred to me to check so kudos to you on the brilliant research idea no no but you know it sounds like it could be though it does sound goldsmithy yeah. yeah it's not a million miles away from like the boys from brazil or something like that yeah poland is not yet lost that is, is uncannily a theme of the episode itself right. like not even subtext but a textual theme of the episode mm -hmm. yeah and you know i i have to admit even even though it's not an original Goldsmith composition, at least not in full, I was kind of more impressed with what he had done on a dramatic level in this episode once I found out exactly what this was. I think that it's a really interesting choice. ¶¶ 
do think the way he uses it is really ingenious but i'm still a little disappointed just because the reason i picked this episode you know you've already let me pick which of these jiggles with radio episodes do you want to do and it was my love of this theme that really clinched it it's really unusual you know for a goldsmith radio score from this era to be so strongly anchored by such a well-developed goldsmith theme almost like a next step in his artistic evolution or something and knowing that it's adapted i can say like well it's brilliantly adapted but it's not what i thought it was so that's a little bit of a disappointment to me i guess i don't share your disappointment because the adaptation is so brilliant and it never just sounds like the straightforward Polish national anthem. No. He always makes it his own. So for me, like I compare it with other Goldsmith scores where I'm disappointed he didn't write the main theme, like the River Wild. Uh, Wild Rovers. Yeah. And Wild Rovers uses Goodbye Old Paint. And those, they're much more sounding like the original melody to me. Mm. This one, he just distorts and he he puts so interesting harmonies underneath it that it's, I mean, it's practically unrecognizable. You only hear the connection if you're looking for it or if you're really familiar with the piece. Yeah, he, uh, he Jimi Hendrix is it. <laughs> Well, I think what I like about it in the score as a whole is just the way that he'll pull those little suspense motifs out of mm -hmm. that theme in a way that, again, they're barely recognizable at times, but it's still all of the same mold. So it's very much handled like he would handle his own material, you mm -hmm. know, the way that he normally writes a theme and then parts of the theme become little elements of the score that he uses throughout. It just felt like a lot of modern or develop Jay Goldsmith techniques in this, despite the earliness of it. Yeah, he can just evoke it with three notes, or maybe even sometimes two notes. Yeah, we should mention that when it, he first introduces it, it's a pretty long-lined idea in full. It's about 16 notes in its full form when he first introduces it. But as you guys say, he regularly shortens it, usually to just the first few notes for economy. But yeah, he, he really takes it in a lot of different directions. So five note theme, or did you guys sort of kind of meanderingly get to that? Um, no, we haven't mentioned that yet. It's not really a theme. And the five notes, that's not based on the main theme. It's kind of playing as a counterpoint. No, it's just five repeated notes. It's kind of a recurring rhythm uh, that you hear throughout the score. And it's usually used to add kind of a layer of tension and rhythm to a cue. It's not always beneath the main theme, but it's frequently beneath the main theme. Yeah, it's not even really a melodic idea. It's really just a rhythmic idea. And sometimes it's on untuned percussion, like snare drum. 
but when it's played by a tuned instrument, it usually just stays on one note. I didn't remember any times when it like jumped around. And then elsewhere in the score, there are some stray, what sounded like to me, pretty self-contained ideas that repeat within the cue they appear in, but don't seem to serve a broader function within the full score. Uh, for instance, there's a cue later in the score. It's called Plans in the Night. It has this little eight-note figure in it that we hear on multiple instruments over the course of that cue. They talked and made their plans far into the night. They knew that it might be unwise to be seen together after that until they boarded the plane. It was agreed that only two guns would be carried, and both of these by Haleski, who as a party member would be least likely... But it doesn't appear elsewhere in the score. Uh, Yavar, there was a spot, though, where you noticed uh, a, a little repeat. Yeah, there's a six-note suspense figure, which mm-hmm. you pointed out in Q10, which David called Corsion on the plane. The plane flew at 10,000 feet over the Czech border. 26 passengers looked down to Earth. But I hear that opening the immediate queue after it, and I didn't feel like that warranted like separate mention up front because Jerry would sometimes do this where he would kind of tie together two cues that are adjacent to each other by opening one with the same idea that he was developing in the previous one. He just kind of makes his music flow that way. He moved away, pink-cheeked, affable, and Shilanka wondered what his friend Joseph Ostrovsky but then I thought I maybe heard it again later near the end of the score in a transformed way. So maybe we'll drop that in and see if it sounds like it's a transformed version of it. But it does technically appear in more than one cue, at least. Yeah, and that's pretty much it as far as recurring elements. It's a pretty straightforward economical score. Well, let's get into the episode. As Yavar mentioned, uh, I named the cues because we don't have anything to go by, and I just tried to be somewhat goldsmithianly brief and basically have them apply to whatever's going on in the show. So our first cue I called the plan. And in the plan, we start with those five-note brass rhythms. I think they're on muted French horns here. And those lay a foundation for our main theme, Uh, You first hear it here, the main theme that is, on solo trumpet. And then that's followed by a series of rising and falling figures. And of course, that's uh, on tune percussion. I'm not sure whether it's xylophone or marimba or, or what exactly. The plan was almost laughable in its conception. The beginning was four months ago. The place, Krakow, Poland. And those replace the brass foundation. Later in this cue, we hear the theme quoted again on clarinet and then on other woodwinds. And that's how we we wrap up this piece. It's a nice warmer resolution at the end, despite the tremolo string still being there subtly underneath, indicating some level of threat. The plan was almost laughable in its conception. The beginning was four months ago. The place, Krakow, Poland. There were two friends, Joseph Ostrovsky, a superintendent in the state bus works, and Frederick Zielonko, an executive of the state radio broadcasting company. 
Both were over 40, both unmarried. They met regularly on Saturday nights for dinner and an evening of chess. In May of 1956, on just such a Saturday, Zelenko was trying to maneuver Ostrovsky into a stalemate. Though one can imagine a more straightforward presentation of the theme, Goldsmith opens with it here already being troubled. So, I mean, I guess this is because some people may just recognize it as the Polish national anthem, but it's interesting that he doesn't put it in a straightforward guise right up front. It's already deteriorating a little bit, and it's got these insistent other elements playing against it. Well, we've got a show that takes place in the Iron Curtain. Yeah. And certainly in 1956, that concept was very much embedded in the American psyche. Mm -hmm. It would be like making a movie about the Holocaust and starting with a very sour, dour, you know, heavy theme because we, we know it's like, let's get into this and this is where we are. So I think people understand who's who's behind the Iron Curtain and who isn't and the way Americans are supposed to think or feel about that. And therefore, you start there because that is the starting point of these guys. Their reason for wanting to leave isn't a plot point. It's it's a, an implication. It's innate. Although a way he could have done it would be to open it up in a straightforward, cheerful guise because, oh, it's a couple of friends sitting down to play a game of chess and they just enjoy each other's company. And then after their disturbing conversation, then he darkens it, right? But he mm-hmm. chose not to do that. He chose up front to say, we're in this, you know, Iron Curtain situation. And I think it's because of the way they talk during the chess conversation where Joseph keeps saying, be careful and that sort of a thing. I think mm-hmm. I think he's setting up, this is where you live. Where you live, there aren't perfectly happy chess days. It's happy mm-hmm. chess days, but you still have to be careful about everything you say. So I, I, I get both possibilities, but I think he made the right choice. Yeah. I don't think you could have opened the episode with the Polish national anthem in its standard form, but there is a part of me that wishes... Maybe he could have worked it into the episode somewhere, uh, let's say maybe as source music on a radio in Corjun's office or mm, something like that. That's interesting. Just so that people could fully appreciate what exactly he is doing here. He gets close to that with the fourth cue. It gets kind of triumphant for a moment. So very briefly, yeah. That's a good point. That's a good spot for it, Clark. That would have been a great place to do it. Yeah. I'm kind of impressed with how good the sound is on some of these cues. I mean, mm-hmm. the close miking of it's a very small ensemble, but the way that he uses them, especially like the, you know, the way he uses the xylophones and the tuned percussion and everything throughout, does a good job of popping out from under the narration. That's maybe something worth pointing out, too, that I've noticed throughout this is that Goldsmith underscores John Daner's narration a lot throughout, but he almost never underscores one of the characters speaking. There's a key moment later when the main character is reading a letter, and I guess in a way that's his own narration, and Goldsmith underscores that with his best cue. But aside from that, I think when characters are having conversations or actions are happening, Goldsmith, I guess he he does certain actions, but he steps back whenever we actually hear dialogue. And I think that pretty much works on a dramatic level as kind of a zooming in, zooming out effect. Mm-hmm. That, yes. You know, Daner is on a different plane from everyone else in this story. Yeah, they're in the cinema verite zone. Mm-hmm. Those dialogue scenes become sort of intimate in a way 
that bolsters the sense of the need for secrecy. Mm-hmm. There is a sense that the speakers are being quiet, that you can hear the sounds of the room around them. And it gives you as a listener, a sense of being attentive to the sounds of the room around you the way that they would be, which is easier to do if you don't have music covering it, even whether it's the hum of a plane or just the outside of the room when they're playing chess, there's even some, there's even some sound going on. There's clinking of glasses and yeah. drinks being poured and that kind of thing. And it makes you feel like you're just a fly on the wall and it, yeah. and it makes it feel a little more real. There's less artifice maybe mm-hmm. that you notice because the score takes a step back. After this opening scene, it's funny, you know, we, we often talk about, lately we've often talked about how Goldsmith will introduce the musical nature of whatever film he's covering in the first cue. And in a sense, the first two scenes do this because the opening is all of that music over John Daner. And then we have the longest unscored scene, about four and a half minutes for this dinner, this chess game, and the conversation that starts the plot moving, which is, as we mentioned, completely unscored. Mm -hmm. And there's our sound world in two scenes. This is what we're going to be listening to. Mm -hmm. Scored narration and unscored scenes for the most part. Very light on music in the first half. And then once the action picks up, the score picks up. So Before it becomes a suspense thriller. Yeah. And so our second cue is meeting Corjun. Now who's Corjun, Clark? He is... um... He's the boss. He is Frederick's manager, mm-hmm. his his boss, basically. A definite party guy, yeah. Yeah, uh, so so Frederick works for, uh, he's a state bus work superintendent, mm-hmm. and this is his employer, and because the country is becoming what it's becoming, it's kind of a problem that Frederick is not officially a member of the Communist Party if he wants to do any travel, which is why he's being called in for a conversation. Isn't Frederick the radio person and his friend Joseph is the bus guy? Joseph's the radio guy. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, no, no. That's uh, what I thought too. Corsion, but... Okay. They switch between first and last names a lot, so it can be really confusing. Uh, it's like Game of Thrones, you know, hard to keep track of all the names. But Frederick is the one in the next scene who gets called into his boss Corsion's office, who's a big party guy that he has to be wary around. And it's Corsion who assigns him to supervise communications. Zilonko, Comrade Cajon. Zilonko, I've had my eye on you. Oh? I've had my eye on you, and I've been wondering why a man of your abilities, your obvious devotion to your work, has not become a party member. Oh, well, I I suppose that I'm not well enough politically adjusted. Perhaps I'd I'd rather others make the decisions for me. Mm, It makes it a little awkward at this time. You see... There is the mechanical exhibition in Prague. Yes, I know. You are the logical man to send to supervise our broadcasts. And so, yeah, he's gone from having a secret conversation with a friend who he hopes will join him in escaping Poland to now he's got to have a conversation with someone who he dare not let on. And that's meeting Korsian. That's his meeting with his boss. But this cue actually leads into that meeting, right? Mm-hmm. I think. Yes. And interestingly, uh, Korsian is the only one of our four voiced characters who doesn't get a first name. He's just Korjun, which I thought was intriguing. But this cue opens with a pretty distressed take on the main theme. Yeah, the strained flutes here are almost painful to hear. Like shrill and piercing sounding. Yeah, but that's being played atop tense strings and some clockwork-like rising and falling figure. (laughs) 
then you've got some low brass. Sure, French horns. And that's taking up the theme with oboe floating around on top of it. A week later, on the following Friday, Frederick Gilanco was called into the office of the manager of the state radio. The man's name was Cojun. He liked Gilanco, and he offered his subordinate a cigar. I think that's maybe the, there's muted trumpet. The mm-hmm. two elements definitely feel at odds. They're creating a sense of something not fitting, mm-hmm. like maybe representing our main character not fitting in or something like that. And then um, the conversation goes on to having Corsion say that Frederick's going to have to have a party member superior join him for his trip to Prague. Because he's not a, a party member. Right, because he's not a party member. So that's... Our first uh, obstruction to the plan is brought in. At least we think it is an obstruction at this point. Mm-hmm. Right, we do, g- giving the show its its name, Suspense. <laughs> and then we move on to the, the next QI call was Meeting Ostrovsky. This opens with a fast and uneasy nine-note figure that appears on woodwinds atop tense strings. And Yavar, uh, you had a thought about that. I'm positive that this is a sped up version of the main theme, which is adapting Poland's national anthem. I mean, it's like the difference between happy birthday to you and happy birthday to you. You know, it's, it just <laughs> runs them all together really quick. Yeah. That evening, Zielanko called. His- it doesn't have the rhythm element of it. I also hear what sound like subtle strikes of tuned percussion underneath here. So, Yavar, you're saying it's not the right rhythm, but the melody is correct? Is that what you're saying? I think the notes are the same. I think it is okay. intending to be a rushed version of the Polish national anthem. I think it's obviously derived, but I, I don't think it's literally the same notes, but, but it's not happy birthday to you sped up, basically. No, yeah. exactly. Listeners, you can decide. <laughs> It sounded different to me, but, you know, Jerry is quite good at kind of muddying the waters with these things a little bit, sort of nodding at something rather than directly quoting it. So that sort of thing can be tricky. Yeah, we keep running into him. We'll find something like Clark talked about his eight note thing that appears in the one cue. And we'll find something like that that seems to go through a score, but we'll have to qualify it by saying, it's an eight-note thing, although sometimes it's six or seven notes, and once it's nine <laughs> notes, right. but it's structurally the same thing. Exactly. And so in a sense, I guess we basically just have, how is is it enough to be, is it happy to you? I feel like he's dropping some notes. So enough for you to say that it is still derivative, but you think it's not close enough to say what Yavar is saying. Yeah, I'll just play it again right here, let the listener decide. That evening, Zielanko called his friend. That evening, Zielanko called his friend. But I mean, like, remember when we covered Incident in the Middle of Nowhere from Rawhide, Carlos was just like, oh, yeah, this is the same idea as this. And he could tell that based on like two notes or, or, you know. So, yeah, Goldsmith was really sophisticated with this sort of thing. Well, whether this is the same idea or not, uh, or a variation or not, we hear it again on flute, and then a brief quote of what is very definitely the main theme on low woodwinds at the end. And there's some tense brass notes here and there throughout this piece as well. I think those uh, two-note punctuations are muted French horns, kind of like, you know, the two-note punctuations on tuned percussion. 
That evening, Shilanko called his friend Joseph Ostrovsky. They had not seen or spoken to each other since the preceding Saturday. But Shilanko had made up his mind, now that the chance of escape had become a reality. And he wanted Ostrovsky to join him. An hour later, they were together in Shilanko's rooms. We have another conversation after this, which I think is the revelation that Haleski is actually somebody that our main character already knows, and he's already arranged. He's the party leader that's going to oversee him, but um, he already wants to escape as well. So I think that's where we find out about that. And I think we find out that it was actually Haleski's idea Mm -hmm. to say, oh no, uh, he needs a supervisor Mm -hmm. because he's not in the party because they needed somebody who could fly a plane and Haleski is a pilot. Mm-hmm. So, like, this was actually all planned, we find out, and wasn't actually a setback in any way. So I called the queue number four, meeting Vladimir Haleski. Maybe it should have been called the Vladimir Haleski meeting if it actually comes into or after that revelation. But in any case, Q4 is about a meeting with Vladimir Haleski. And it opens with a big and brassy take on the main theme It's at its most anthemic here in the context of the score, uh, but still there's some distance between this and the traditionally performed Polish national anthem. Mm-hmm. I remember this actually plays when Holeski is introduced as the third person. This is Zielanko introducing Holeski as the third man of their operation to his friend. So this is like the big reveal of, oh, the party supervisor guy, he's actually with us. Yeah, it's something like, here's my buddy, Vladimir Haleski. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. yeah. And that's so. why the music gets so triumphant here. This is the closest it gets. Uh, Joseph is meeting Vladimir Haleski, not not our guy. Correct. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, for me, the first time listening to this, I was really suspicious of this guy, right? Because isn't it convenient that he's a party member and he's interested to escape and he's not the long-term friend here. So it's a really good kind of misdirect. And, you know, the music kind of goes along with that. You think this is the most optimistic the music gets kind of. So that music is followed by a a very suspenseful and dissonant flourish. Uh, You've got some low brass notes coming in to underscore uh, our announcer and then another bombastic flourish to close there's these three massive climbing notes followed by this kind of surprising one little quieter note. Yeah, I like that the final brass note feels a little unexpected, and there's also a neat little grace note from piano at the very end. It seems to promise surprises in store and is a really neat choice for a two commercial. listening to The Security Agent, tonight's presentation on radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. If I'm not mistaken, I think this is the only time that Goldsmith scores something that's not the story. Mm -hmm. Like, this starts out as a story cue, 
and then it goes into uh talking about suspense and that's still goldsmith music underneath it yeah yeah so it's kind of different but it doesn't sound like it goes to uh you know bernard herman format music or anything it sounds like it's of a piece with the rest of the score. It's not like, not only is it not crossfading to Herman, he's not folding in Herman's notes. And as a two commercial, it has the, it has the style of a two commercial, but his notes are still in narrative kind of, they're still, it's like, da, 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 in a way, but it's sort of like, da, 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 like off to commercial, but we're still in a rough zone, a behind the iron curtain, little minor key ish. It's nice that it, he kind of does and doesn't do the thing we don't like when he does do it. <laughs> That's clear at all. Then speaking of Herman, we actually do get Herman's suspense series music come after the ad for next week's show. There's an interesting thing that happens here that's similar to what happened uh, on Have Gun, Will Travel, where we transition between Herman and Goldsmith. Goldsmith, like, it, there's like a seamless transition between the, the Herman suspense music and the next Goldsmith cue. And now, we bring back to our Hollywood soundstage Parley Bear and Howard McNear, starring in tonight's production, The Security Agent, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. So, hey, Q5, I called Vladimir's Idea. And this is where you've got that five-note foundation on brass this time with that tense percussion Jens mentioned. The snares uh, here seem to be echoing the French horns with the same five pattern. Mm -hmm. That that five-note brass is establishing it first, and then the snares take over is how I heard it. And you've got just a quick quote of the main theme placed atop that. I think it's brass and woodwinds together here uh, with an unresolved sounding finish. It's nice hearing this kind of martial quality in the score. You know, it reminds me of his military scores from later in his career. And it's probably the most pronounced that that aspect of it has been yet. You know, very aggressive sounding. That main theme also feels like it's encroaching on on our heroes a little bit. You know, like um, the thing you love might also be the thing that destroys you. That's kind of how I read this cue, at least tonally. Right. Mm. And then it peters out kind of limply. It has this very unresolved closer, as you've already pointed out, that becomes a thing throughout the rest of the score. He kind of does it several times in a row, these uh, sustained notes at the end that are trailing off. I think it's pointing towards maybe Ostrovsky's becoming, you know, his his reluctance and he's becoming resigned to what his friend's going to do at this point. Going along with it, yeah. Which, you know, we get in, we realize in a different context later, but here he just seems like he's the nervous, unwilling accomplice kind of thing. You know, I appreciate, and I can't cite chapter and verse on exactly when this happens. There's a point where, where Daner narrates, Joseph just wished it would all be over. That's at the very, that's before the reveal. It is. That's when they're on the plane. Yeah. And- things are about to happen. And what's nice is he's not lying. Yeah. He gets to narrate exactly what Joseph is feeling, and it works in the context of what we don't know as we listen and what we do know once we know it if we listen again, which is a a pretty smart thing. One of my favorite things about this uh, radio episode is that 
it works as well on the second listen yeah. when you've had the spoiler. Yeah. There's no misdirect that doesn't make sense. And there's yeah. no aspect of a character that doesn't, you know, make sense knowing where they are at the end of it. But it also doesn't give things away. Especially because Joseph is Frederick's friend. Yeah. Their friendship is real. His concern, which we read as just the general reluctance, it's because of who he is, you know, which Clark has given away. And as the security agent, he's concerned for his friend. So it totally plays emotionally. The drama is still there. Nothing has changed because it's not like he's actually the evil friend. He isn't, you know. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's great because human warmth can really make something something get over being just a gimmick, just a plot gimmick. I got to say, I really appreciate this episode in light of having seen the horrible My Dark Days from General <laughs> Electric Theater, where communists are all evil, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just like they are the devil incarnate. They're, you know, Satan worshipers or something like that. Whereas in this, it's everybody's just people, yeah, you know? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, they're on different sides. They don't agree but they're still friends and they care about each other. Like it's really refreshing and impressive in a just half hour radio program. And case in point, your note here about which refers to what is now probably one of the most well-known cinematic friendships, Frodo and Sam, <laughs> you know, also in, in stories, you cite Yavar, my mind's made up. All right, then I have to go with you. Well, Joseph, I can't talk you out. No, my mind's made up. I'm going. All right. Then I have to come with you. Leading into the next cue, which, all right, I have to go with you, is Joseph. I mean, he may be saying words that because he is a security agent, he has to say, but he is saying them like a friend and he means them yeah. like a friend. It works both ways. Uh -huh. It works on the first listen when you don't have a clue and they're misdirecting so well of is uh, the third member the security agent and they're being really naive that a party member is going along or, oh, at the last minute, the boss shows up and is he the security agent? Right. And then there's this guy in the third row. He's looking at me funny. Is he the security agent? Like up to the last moment. Did my uncle send they're somebody? They're misdirecting yeah. so well. Mm -hmm. And this character, they get Floyd the Barber. And he's, he wasn't Floyd the Barber on Andy Griffith's show yet. Right. But his voice is so like mild mannered and he comes across as like the character mm -hmm. but then in the end you realize oh he's just a caring character right but yes. and he's trying to protect his friend but he just he was expert casting and a really good vocal performance from howard mcnear to really seem unthreatening you know he refuses the gun so we're not worried about him we're worried about the third member that's you know not the well-known friend we're worried about holesky because he's like i'm going to carry both the guns don't worry i'm the party member you guys don't need guns it's right. better if you don't have them it's really like so economical it's almost as economical as goldsmith is in terms of just hmm. you know just enough to lead you off the scent kind of. Do you sense that he was inspired by that with this score? Yeah, I feel like, you know, this was a really solid script and and Gold's, I mean, it was his first time on the series as far as we know. So maybe he was also trying to make a strong impression. But uh, yeah, I feel like maybe that explains why Goldsmith did such an interesting score with such interesting thematic development is he was inspired by the depth of the story. Like the, this story has some depth to it. Next cue we call, I called Plans Into the Night. This one, you've got this uh, suspenseful eight-note figure. First, you hear it on clarinet, and then on 
flute, uh, and then strings swirl and tremble a little bit, and you've got some brass offering these short, suspenseful bursts. I, I also think I hear something plucked or struck here, but it's hard to make out whether it's pizzicato strings or some subtle percussion. And then you've got the bassoon quoting that eight-note figure uh, once more. I really love how that final bassoon note just kind of, it's a really low note, and it just kind of trails off here. They talked and made their plans far into the night. They knew that it might be unwise to be seen together after that until they boarded the plane. It was agreed that only two guns would be carried, and both of these by Haleski, who, as a party member, would be least likely to be searched. Once on the plane, a gun would be given to Zhilanko, and the other retained by Haleski. Ostrovsky, by his own admission, unused to firearms, would act as liaison between the two men once the plane had been taken over. You, Frederick, will keep the passengers in their seats. So at the halfway point in time of the episode, uh, we've heard six of the 16 cues, and that's because it's dialogue heavy for the first half, Mm -hmm. and it's a little more action heavy for the second half. A little more plot starts to happen. And so we're going to to sort of ramp up a little bit. We get 10 cues, including the longest and most substantial one in the whole score pretty soon. Right, yeah, in the next, what is it, like 13 minutes. So our next one, Q7, uh, I called The Next Three Days. Pretty obvious what that's about. Mm-hmm. Not to be confused with the Russell Crowe film. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, low brass opening and then uh, really stabby strings. And uh, I thought I heard some chimes there as well, just to kind of punctuate those strings. But I, I think you've already... I thought those were flutes, maybe. That's possible. But, you know, on old radio recording, sometimes it's hard to tell. Yeah. Right? For me, it reminds me of some of Goldsmith's climax work. It's very dramatic and mm-hmm. in your face here, like Trail of Terror almost kind of thing. <laughs> The next three days went slowly. You've got that uh, five-note rhythm coming back in after that. It's on woodwinds this time with some percussion. Now that the decision had been made, Shilonko became increasingly wary. On his way to work on Monday, he had the feeling that he was being followed, but dismissed the thought as due to his nerves. He carefully avoided any words with Haleski at the radio station, although he saw him two or three times that day. On Tuesday. Yeah, and it's not it's not snares doing the percussion this time. It's some other kind of drum plus really subtle cymbals I can hear. Yeah, and whatever's on top of it, I don't think it's the main theme this time, but you've got some mysterious and sustained, slowly shifting notes. And I, honestly, I cannot tell what instruments are performing this. You guys have any have any guesses? Both Zhilanku and Haleski were called to the manager Korjon's office for instructions concerning the radio broadcast schedule at the Prague exhibition. On their way out, in an empty corridor, Haleski passed a note to Zhilanku and walked downstairs to his office. If you mean the more strained, higher notes, I think that's muted brass, maybe French horns. But I also hear low brass here, and that is the main anthem theme being hinted at, I'm sure, underneath. Mm. Okay. But it's subtle. I mean, Goldsmith's really subtle with it. Now that the decision had been made, Shilonko became increasingly wary. On his way to work on Monday, he had the feeling that he was being followed, but dismissed the thought as due to his nerves. He carefully avoided any words with Haleski at the radio station, although he saw him two or three times that day. On Tuesday, both Shilonko and Haleski were called to the manager Korjon's office for instructions concerning the radio broadcast schedule at the Prague exhibition. On their way out, 
In an empty corridor, Haleski passed a note to Zhilonko and walked downstairs to his office. The next Q, uh, Q8, I called the escape starts. Yeah. And that, as Yavar said earlier, is the most substantial cue in the score in, in every sense of the word, I think. You know, not only does it have all the key elements that make up this score, uh, a little bit of everything, so it makes up for a good summary of the whole, but it's also really Jerry's best opportunity to develop this material and to give, you know, us the time. This is like the one time that he gets a whole minute where he can do something, you know, emotional and really, you know, build a cue up. Love this part. Obviously, the whole queue is over two minutes long, but you're you're maybe talking about that central section about the the letter. Yeah, I almost wanted to suggest we call this queue the letter because that is the highlight of the score for me when he's writing it. The middle section. Mm-hmm, exactly. And I mentioned that up front. It's a rare time where Goldsmith does underscore a character's mm-hmm. voice because it's not dialogue. It's it's um, a letter to his uncle. But before we get to that part, you've got some suspenseful strings and piano to kick us off, and then a brief burst of action before the suspense continues. Shilonko went into the lavatory and burned the note. On his way home that night, once again he had the feeling that he was being followed. On Thursday, the day before he was to leave... Yeah, the burst of action reminded me a little bit of some of um, Goldsmith's Frontier Gentleman music. It's it's trying to communicate some that something dramatic has happened in a moment with only music since there's no dialogue and nothing can be seen. But it's kind of like maybe that dramatic to uh, commercial music from earlier when it went from triumphant to oh bad stuff's gonna happen like it's it's very like let me communicate that some something as dramatic is happening and all the only tool we have because there's no visuals is the music to get that across and then we've got this plaintive wandering clarinet idea that's underscored by light percussion um and that accompanies the beginning part of the reading of this letter Zhilonko wrote a letter to his uncle in Warsaw, a man for whom he had great respect and love. He said in part, You will, I think, understand why I'm doing this. Perhaps there are many of us here in Poland who will agree with me and others who might think I am a coward, and that if I feel so strongly about freedom, I should stay here and fight for it at home. I do really like that wandering clarinet idea that intros to the main anthem theme Mm -hmm. coming in that's like a one-off but it's like a really kind of gentle lovely lead into it yeah that's a very nice just kind of miniature character sketch almost right there that little idea but it eventually gives way to a noble statement of the main theme on strings with oboe counterpoint adding some emotional complications the main theme emerges again on woodwinds and here, its relatively straightforward nature, I think, successfully conveys uh, just kind of the clarity of purpose that Frederick is feeling in this moment. Someday, I hope that I shall be able to see you again, as you are the last of my living family. In any event, I shall think of you often, as I trust you will of me, kindly. You must burn this letter, as I should not want you to be involved in the event that I am either caught or that I escape. With fondest regards, your nephew, Frederick. It's such a, an earnest and touching development of the theme, isn't it? Like it's 
this is the warmest I think it ever gets. Yeah. And again, you know, we keep saying this, but again, it is pretty far from its original inspiration. But yeah, it never feels more human and less emotionally complicated, I think, than it does right here. Following the reading of the letter, you've got a bit more ominous suspense material, some more jittery percussion. Those are snare drums again. Thank you, Yvar. And uh, some uncertain woodwinds to close out the cue. Shilonko went into the lavatory and burned the note. On his way home that night, once again, he had the feeling that he was being followed. On Thursday, the day before he was to leave, Shilonko wrote a letter to his uncle in Warsaw, a man for whom he had great respect and love. He said in part, You will, I think, understand why I'm doing this. Perhaps there are many of us here in Poland who will agree with me and others who might think I am a coward. And that if I feel so strongly about freedom, I should stay here and fight for it at home. My dear uncle, if I can accomplish any small thing in the free world, it'll be to say the things that need to be said about what is happening here. This, I am convinced, I am more fitted for than taking up the battle on the home front. I fear I would only end up before a firing squad. I have no illusions about my strength as an underground agent. Either I am too afraid or too conscious of my own inadequacies if I stay. I would never be able to fight. I have never been able to. That is why I must leave Poland. Someday, I hope that I shall be able to see you again, as you are the last of my living family. In any event, I shall think of you often as I trust you will of me kindly. You must burn this letter, as I should not want you to be involved in the event that I am either caught or that I escape. With fondest regards, your nephew, Frederick. On Friday morning, in the second week of June, the sleek transport plane began loading passengers at the Krakow airport. Among the passengers were Frederick Zelonko, Joseph Ostrovsky, and Vladimir Haleski. There was another man who walked out to the loading ramp behind Zelonko. I feel like one of us commented that they hate snare drums. Was that you, David? You don't like snare drums except when Jerry Goldsmith uses them. He really knows how to use them. Uh, yeah, the j- snare drums, when they're used by almost anybody else, the piece of music surrounds the snare drums. The snare drum is like the lead vocalist in a song. And Goldsmith is able to just use them as an instrument. They don't have to be, they go, they are doing their job of feeling militaristic without being the front of every cue. And so, yeah, I do, I appreciate it when he uses it because it really bugs me. It feels as lazy as playing Dixie or when Johnny comes marching home when we're in the South. It's push button music. Mm-hmm. So yes, exactly. I, his snares don't, jump out at me as mm-hmm. in the way that they almost always do. Because it's not like you're rarely going to hear snare drums in a love theme. They have a place dramatically, and I get that. But they don't have to be underlined to accomplish that. Mm-hmm. All right. So, yeah. So Calm Before the Storm, that wonderful piece of music, because we've now we've got bad news a-poppin'. Q9 is Corsion at the Airport. And this comes in after Corsion, the boss, unexpectedly shows up at the last minute in potentially suspicious fashion, like 
uh, Haleski has heard that there's going to be a security agent on the plane, we immediately suspect, oh, maybe it's him. So the music fits it. Yeah, it's a short and simple cue. You've got a pair of high brass blast with some low brass response, plus some percussion. Yeah, pretty cool cue as far as buttons and cues go. Yeah, makes an impact. And so part two of the bad news, uh, the reality, Corsion on the plane. And this is following their discussion, wondering if Corsion might be the security agent and they're getting their, their guns prepared and that kind of thing. So this cue opens with some threatening brass and then... This has another one of our isolated or almost isolated, as we talked about earlier in the show, ideas, a, a suspenseful six note figure that uh, we hear first on oboe and then on flute atop a tense layer provided by, I'm not sure if this is a novachord or, or some instrument along those lines. I, I couldn't tell exactly what this was. But that would have been my guess too. Yeah. I, I'm thinking that's what it is. And there's also some brass continuing throughout the queue with some threatening punctuations. The plane flew at 10,000 feet over the Czech border. 26 passengers looked down to earth as the announcement was made. And although there was no difference, each thought that he noticed a change in the landscape as the invisible line was crossed. Corjon moved down the aisle with a glass of vodka in his hand. He smiled benignly at Zhilonko, at Haleski. All right, and then we have a little unscored interlude where they're on the plane and Corjon cheerfully asks them to, to join him for a drink. So he's a party man and he's a party man. <laughs> waka, yeah. waka. And then we've got to underscore Joseph's timidity again in a cue I called without a gun. Yeah, you've got this uh, clarinet idea to open. And Yavar, this is the one you noted is very similar to the previous cue. At the very beginning, it's really brief, but it's the exact same six-note idea from the previous cue. Maybe slightly abbreviated, but it's clearly meant to be the same idea. But then it's soon joined by Bassoon hinting at the anthem theme uh, with just the first three notes of it. He moved away, pink-cheeked, affable, and Shilonka wondered what his friend Joseph Ostrovsky was thinking and felt sorry. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that bassoon, you've got some low woodwinds. Yeah, and this is back to the clarinet following up from those three bassoon notes. For him because he had to sit alone, without a gun. In his seat... Ostrovsky was thinking of Zhilonko and wishing that it was all over. Yeah, those are uh, briefly quoting the main theme. Uh, then you've got a big dramatic flourish to close out the cue. Then they were ten minutes away from the point where they would make their attempt. Zhilonko became increasingly nervous. That dramatic flourish starts out with this very declaratory trumpet figure, followed by tuned percussion strikes, and I think some strings in there, too. He moved away, pink-cheeked, affable, and Shilonko wondered what his friend Joseph Ostrovsky was thinking and felt sorry for him because he had to sit alone, without a gun. In his seat, Ostrovsky was thinking of Shilonko and wishing that it was all over. Then they were ten minutes away from the point where they would make their attempt. Zhilonko became increasingly nervous. So then we get Zhilenko, his his nervousness is building up, and the time is counting down, and 
as soon as we hear there's nine minutes before they're going to try and hijack the plane, that leads to the queue, which, David, you called It Was Time. Oh, is that where you're going to? Okay, yeah. I wanted to yeah. say, some, <laughs> say something in between. Oh, go for it. Yeah. It, so, you know, in, it's famously in Psycho, among the many famous things in Psycho, Famously, it has a main character switch, which starts when we kill off the first main character, uh, an embezzler, who's rethinking her life, and really solidifies... Wow, David, spoilers for people mm-hmm. who haven't seen Psycho. Yeah, right. Uh, sorry, suck it up. And th- it's finished when our, our anti-hero is trying to get rid of the car that she was driving by having it sink into this nearby swamp and it starts to sink and then it stops sinking. And now the suspense is related to him. And as the audience, we get into suspense like, Oh no, what's he going to do if the car doesn't sink? This is not going to work. And it's too far away for him to like push on it. And then it finishes sinking. And we sort of like, we're relieved. And now Anthony Perkins is the main character of our film. Anthony Perkins uh, if uh, we don't know the murderer at the time, but certainly an accomplice, you know, to his mother's murder, as far as we know in the film, which kind of makes him a bad guy. But giving us suspenseful things about him render him the good guy. Think about this story. This is a story of airplane hijackers, which we commonly call terrorists. Now, it's, it's in the context of like a night crossing where it's, these are good guys because they're trying to escape from the bad guys, and we get that. They still they're are, not terrorists because they're not trying to terror, hold someone hostage. They're not terrorizing anybody. Correct. That's right. They're <laughs> yeah. not. No, it's, their, their tactics aren't. They're going to terrorize people because if you're on a plane and someone pulls a gun and says, we're going here instead of there, you are going to be scared. It's not their goal. Right, but it's not but like it's an, we're going to kill the hostages correct. if you don't give us what we want. It's like, we're just going to escape if you guys want to escape with us, you're welcome to join it, or you can just right. go back wherever you want. Correct. So they're hijackers. That's right. But, hij- but, but hijacking yeah. hijacking a plane is a necessarily sure. terrifying thing. You shoot the gun sure. in the wrong direction, you blow out a window, the plane is going down. You are endangering yeah. people. And it's interesting that this whole story is about taking this thing that we naturally read on the list of makes you a bad guy, and contextually you're like... No, they actually, one, aren't bad guys to start with, two, aren't poorly intentioned, three, go out of their way to not scare the passengers in exactly what you just quoted, Yafar, mm-hmm. as quickly as possible. Yeah. So, but it's still, it's interesting that one listing of this, and I'm not sure it's correct, said, this is the story of the first airplane hijacking. Now, I don't think it's based on a true story at all. So this is just OTR, internet you know, nothing's quite correct. But I also thought, well, that's an interesting way to describe that, that it is a story of a plane hijacking because it is the story of a plane hijacking. And our suspense begins with the cue, it was time. This is the time for the heist, time for the hijacking, time for the big plan to start cue. And it's right in the narration. That five note foundation. That's on muted brass, I think here. That kicks off the queue that's accompanied this time by these kind of anxious uh, they sound kind of like tiktok ideas mm-hmm. uh tiktok is in a clock not as in the social media <laughs> site right. but anyway those are on percussion and piano and they're clearly suggestive of time in the way they're being used here since they are up against the clock and uh, there are stray nods at the theme on woodwinds 
so solo flute first, I think, and then on solo clarinet. And those are in the mix as well. Shilonko tried to count the seconds and watched them grow into minutes. And suddenly it was time. He felt an elbow nudge his side, and he reached into his pocket for the cold comfort of the gun. His mouth was dry, and he was very afraid. The two men slowly walked forward to the pilot's compartment. Yeah, this is a pretty cool suspense piece that, to me, feels like proto-Twilight Zone music. Hmm, and maybe that's that. because, you know, I, I think of, like, you know, Nervous Man, Five Dollar Room or something, mm-hmm. because yeah. of the, the yeah. tick-tocking. Yeah, yeah. This is very much mm-hmm. in the same sound world as what he would end up doing for, you know, Twilight Zone and Thriller and stuff like that. And, you know, to a certain extent, Jens, in the same uh, level of character depth world, mm-hmm. you know, Twilight Zones, he would spend 25 minutes watching characters that were pretty rich for the short time you got to spend with them. And I think for radio, this is also in that area. Mm-hmm. Sure. So after this cue is when unscored Ostrovsky tries a final time to change his friend's mind while Haleski is going in the cabin to commandeer the plane. So we move on to a scene that takes place in the cabin, and I called it in the pilot's cabin. And here we open with tense, trilling woodwinds, followed immediately by... A pretty quick assertion of that five-note foundation uh, that's on xylophone or tuned percussion of some sort. Uh, Then there are nods at the theme, just the first three notes this time, a couple of times on uh, bassoon. In the pilot's cabin, Vladimir Haleski had worked very quickly. With the pistol butt, he had knocked out the radio operator and was covering the pilot and co-pilot. His orders were terse and to the point. We've taken over the plane. Why do you think the theme is, is nodded at and not fully played, Clark? I think it's just a, an economy of time sort of thing in this case. Okay. Just not space to do the full-blown da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, it's, so it's just, you know, just what you need for this economy. quick moment. But whether it's original Goldsmith or not, Jerry is really good at just hinting at something, mm-hmm. and you instantly get it. You're instantly there. Like, that is the the theme of right. the score. Mm-hmm. I took it intuitively as they're breaking from Poland. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good okay. Yeah. That's why it's just a so fragment. We're breaking. Mm-hmm. So, oh, that's a good observation. That could yeah, be. Could yeah. Be. Not that you would think in your head the words they're breaking from Poland, therefore the musician is breaking the music, but you would intuit yeah. the fragmentation that way maybe. So then unscored, we have Haleski in the cabin addressing the people there and convincing them to land in Austria. And we get a dramatic cue right after that for... Uh, Yeah, I called it the plane swings around. Here we open with this descending flourish. On woodwinds. And then strings are quietly yet urgently repeating the same note. On the other side of the compartment, Shalonko and Ostrovsky waited. And they felt the plane begin to swing around. The passengers became aware of it too. And that's actually a rhythmic five-note foundation idea, I'm pretty sure, Clark. Shalonko and Ostrovsky waited, and they felt the plane begin to swing around. And I did not even hear that. So another instance of Goldsmith kind of returning to his thematic well, or musical element well, I I guess in that case you can't really call it a theme, but in a way that is almost unrecognizable. Certainly a musical element that recurs. So motif or whatever we want to call it. Unscored, we get... Korjun, the boss guy, pushing to the front of the plane. He's demanding to know what's going on. And that ultimately uh, forces Ostrovsky at this point to reveal to his friend that he's the security agent and he's got a gun too. After all, not so anti-gun as we were led to believe. 
and that the confrontation kind of spurred by Corjun ends in gunshots, which lead us to... Yeah, our penultimate cue, which I called gunshots and resolution. The gunshots are not identified initially. In fact, the narrator specifically says, well, he specifically narrates that gunshots gunshots went off and makes a point of not telling us who got shot by whom. Yeah, that that, that is the one part where I feel like the narration kind of cheats a little bit. Because you, you talked about how, you know, it's being honest all the way through. Uh, with even Joseph, when, yeah, yeah, even it was with even, Joseph, right? With Joseph, even when, when it isn't giving us all the actual information, but here it's just kind of clearly withholding information for the sake of generating suspense, and it, it felt like the one time the narration was kind of forcing some extra tension into the story. Hundred percent. But I mean, it's the name of the show, Clark. So they got to keep the suspense. I, I know, <laughs> I know. But there's there's plenty there. Yeah, but it's right. and it's tension that's going to last five seconds. So it's not even well just like it would have been better if they had left the narration out. Yes. Of that, let us hear the gunshots and narrate that we moved on to the next scene or three weeks later. Leave us in suspense. This is like Shyamalan showing the flashlight in signs instead of showing us what that the flashlight can't see things in signs. Right. You can don't do, show us. Don't uh, show us what you're doing. Just do it. Yeah. And you can do the audio version of what they do in movies all the time, where there's a gunshot and you cut to two guys and you're waiting a few seconds to see which one of them falls over. Right. But yeah, it it didn't feel quite worth the stunt there to me, especially in this episode, which is uh, until this point so much better and so much more subtle and as i said and honest up to this point it actually stands out a lot more as a weird narrator gimmick yeah given what's been going on it it worked on me because it had me up to this point and i was i mean like i'll admit in this moment i was like but which one got shot like it, i was right there well, in suspense i was in suspense yeah, too right. but it but it was in a come on man sort of way but <laughs> i'm with you clark yeah yeah, I kind of was with Clark, but I mean, I'm glad it worked on you, Yavar. I yeah. mean, that's, yeah. and it's, you know, 70-ish years old, so it shouldn't, and it did, and that's a compliment to it. So Gunshots and Resolution is the cue. Right, so this cue opens with a big brassy flourish on trumpets, then you've got some tense tremolo strings and some repeated brass notes. I wondered if they were maybe doing your five-note rhythm or hinting at it. I wasn't sure. I'd have to go back and listen to it. I didn't catch it the last time you said they were doing it, so so it, it's possible they were. It is questionable, as the cabin door was opened, which of them fired first, Shilonko or Ostrovsky. The fact remains that one of them was hit and the other was not. But I'd have to take another listen to that to know for sure. But there are definitely... Um, there's this big climbing, brassy, climactic moment with snare drums beneath. And then finally, you've got the main theme. It's very sad and contemplative in this case uh, on strings to close us out. Three weeks later, two men met in a hospital room in Vienna. The one lying thin and pale in bed was Joseph Ostrovsky. The other, his good friend Frederick Zelonko. I just really love the harmonies here at the end, and all throughout the score, really. But Jerry really achieves some subtle emotional effects. Mm-hmm. You don't even know sometimes what they mean or like which way they're going, but they're so conflicted and sophisticated in a way his harmonies all throughout the score and as he develops that main theme in particular 
It is questionable, as the cabin door was opened, which of them fired first, Shilonko or Ostrovsky. The fact remains that one of them was hit and the other was not. Three weeks later, two men met in a hospital room in Vienna. The one lying thin and pale in bed was Joseph Ostrovsky. The other, his good friend Frederick Zelonko. Then we get the final scene, touching final scene between the two old friends. And Jerry knows he doesn't need to score that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really good exchange. They're, they're still friends, even though one of them has shot the other. And like I, I like the observation that if you hadn't shot me you'd probably be dead right now like they're really frank and mm -hmm. it's just a, a final touching scene that i like a lot i'm sorry that i hurt you if you had not you'd be dead now yes i suppose so yeah i, I really like this scene too and you know it's um as we were talking about earlier it's a scene that demonstrates, you know, even though they both did what they felt they had to do, you know, ultimately their friendship is bigger than politics. And I, I like the, the touching but not sentimental way their final scene together plays out. And, and I feel like it's the ending is kind of up in the air, too. Like the tone at the end as Jelenko is trying to convince Ostrovsky even though you were the security agent and you tried to stop us, don't go back to Poland. We don't feel the same way about things, you and I. Yes, we do. Otherwise, you couldn't have protected me for as long as you did, knowing the way I felt. Don't you understand? Joseph, please, don't go back. I'll do everything I can to help. I'll think about it. It's very uncertain whether Ostrovsky is going to relent and listen to his friend and, you know, not go back to Poland. Mm -hmm. Because in his voice, you can't really tell, like, me. he, he says he's going to think about it, but you don't know whether he's just sort of placating him or whether he's actually considering it. Yeah. Is how I read it. Anyway. No, I think you're absolutely mm -hmm. right. And, I, and I, like, I like that ambiguity. Uh, I, I think he yeah. does care enough about his friend to plausibly stay and i think he does care enough about his cause and his home country to plausibly go back mm -hmm. i think it's hard to walk that line successfully and it's hard to walk that line successfully and not tick off your audience with a push button lady or the tiger ending mm-hmm uh, later, the Tiger endings, I think, make people feel like they're being better filmmakers because ambiguity is cooler than answers. And that's usually actually not true. It's usually just as ham-fisted as a Hollywood ending. But this is completely earned. We know and don't know Joseph well enough to completely believe he could go either way and to understand why he would. So it is satisfyingly ambiguous and it is not unsatisfyingly ambiguous. And those mean different things. And it's a nice achievement. Mm -hmm. And it is capped off with our final piece of music, Goldsmith wrapping up the show with uh, his final line. I call the cue, I'll think about it. And here he offers a noble quote of the main theme on brass, followed by three more uncertain brass notes at the end. 
I believe the opening is just on French horns and then trumpets come in for that uncertain ending. I also wondered if I heard maybe some low Nova chord, whatever you, you heard before. Again, something underneath maybe adding a bit more weight at the very end, but it's hard to tell on the audio with this. Well, it would make sense to give it something else to do somewhere in this score if you've got that. So as uh, is now our now our want, we now do Goldsmith ratios on everything. So even though you guys didn't do it with the early radio shows, we're going to do it with the radio shows. So Jens, episode opinion about the security agent. What do you think of it as an episode of radio? <sighs> I feel like I am probably too jaded for this. I grew up in the shadow of the fall of the Berlin Wall and... I saw a lot of stories like this on television, like a lot. I've seen so many, whether it's The Desperate Ones or Repentance or Eleni or, God, there's so many stories like this. And, and then you add, you know, the fact that America also produced an insane amount of, you know, anti-communist propaganda stuff in that same period that was also all around. But did you get the propaganda sense from this? I mean, yeah, they're like, you, you, you don't, I mean, early on, they're like, do you want cold beer instead of warm beer? Well, <laughs> it doesn't feel that propagandistic. It's still, you know, a, a prime example of that subgenre of the escaping communism drama of which, you know, Night Crossing is also one. Jay Goldsmith scored another one of these. And honestly, I like Night Crossing a lot better. The thing that I like in Night Crossing is the actual mechanics of the escape and how interesting and exciting that is. And that's something that wasn't particularly interesting to me in this, where it's just like, yeah, we're going to hijack this plane and land in Austria. Uh, everything kind of works out perfectly to get to the point where we have this opportunity. And then we just do it. And we're still good friends. And everybody's kind of OK with it. I mean, I feel like this one is more of a relationship drama yeah and i mean at least that's how it it turns out and they've got less than half an hour to do it so i get that it's a 30 minute radio show i just i just felt like it was fairly insubstantial and it didn't really do all that much for me and it was you know one of those it was extremely well-trodden territory for me and uh yeah i'd, I'd rather watch night crossing or something so I'll, I'll give this like a five out of ten. Oh wow well yeah i guess i felt a lot more positive about it because yes it is a lot of tropes going on in here and overall it's fairly predictable story but i'll say it had me going the first time i listened to it maybe because they cast floyd the barber <laughs> as the security See, agent i didn't really recognize any of the actors the first time around even sure. though I've even without knowing Andy Griffith's show, he sounds so timid and like, you know, he's just this warm, friendly guy who who doesn't really want to go along with it. Like he plays it so well. And the way they write it, like I commented before, they misdirect you like three times about it being some other potential person yeah. that it seems likely to be. You know, we don't think he has a gun, et cetera. So it, I don't know. It worked on me and I was somehow surprised in the end. Even though if I'd really been analyzing it, maybe I could have predicted. But yeah, it worked. I didn't really care who the security agent was. I figured, yeah, it's one of the main three guys. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, I was waiting for it based on the title, maybe. But yeah, it worked on me. I really enjoyed it. And I thought the performances were good, especially uh, Howard McNear as the security agent, uh, Orlovsky, not Orlovsky, Ostrovsky, <laughs> the security agent, Orst- Major Orlovsky. This is why I went yep. with Joseph for the whole show. Oh, dear Lord. Yeah. yeah. So I, I thought he was really good. And um, yeah, I gave it an eight out of 10. Where are you, Clark? Yeah, I'm pretty much right where Yuvar is. You know, I, I think I respect Yin's perspective on this. I, I haven't seen a lot of the stuff that he's seen, but I have heard a lot of American radio 1950s anti-communist propaganda. I mean, because it was all over the place back then. You even had whole shows that were dedicated to it, like uh, I Was a Communist for the FBI with Dana Andrews, you know, lots of stuff like that out there. And this technically, you know, falls under that umbrella too. It is a show trying to serve the purpose of telling everybody once again, communism is bad, not even once. But Don't drink warm beer, folks. <laughs> exactly. But to me, this this falls into a category closer, you know, I, I thought, even though it's a very different thing, of something like uh, David Lean's In Which We Serve, mm. which is first and foremost, you know, a propaganda film, but it's so good in its human moments that it becomes something better than that. And the propaganda aspect of it becomes secondary. That's what happened for me with this one. I listened to it three times. And the first time I listened to it, you know, it was purely just trying to keep up with the plot because like and most, the names. Yeah. Yeah. And the names, because like most, you know, espionage themed things, there's a lot of plot in this 30 minutes And then the next couple of times through, you know, knowing who everyone was and what they were doing and why they were doing it and blah, 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 I was just able to focus on the characters and to enjoy spending time with them. And I really warmed to it even more in my repeat listens. So I landed at an 8 out of 10 for this one as well. I'm curious, Clark, on your first listen, were you surprised at the reveal or did you see it coming? I was, honestly. Yeah, I, I thought it was Vladimir, too, because, you know, they threw all the all the signs in his direction. He volunteered for this assignment. He doesn't really, really say a lot in the episode, which is one of the warning bells. Uh, I, I thought they were purposefully trying not to let you get too attached to him so that he could, you know, start sneering and be the bad guy at the end. And he holds on to the guns, right? So you're like immediately suspicious. Yeah, and he holds on to the guns. So, you know. But yeah. yeah, you really think it's Haleski because they're trying to distract you with the boss guy showing up, right. uh, Korjan, and you think, oh, they're not throwing me off the scent. I know it's Haleski. He's keeping both the guns. It's definitely him. Yeah. And then, yeah, it turns out to be uh, the friend Ostrovsky. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not alone in being misled successfully. David, what about you? Well, first off, In Which We Serve is an, is an excellent comparison. Because what, By the way, what a terrific movie. It, it's funny. You could watch In Which We Serve after Citizen Kane and say there are connections in the way those movies are made. Mm. Um, in Which We Serve is, is such a good movie. And I think you're right on the nose. It falls broadly under anti-communist propaganda, but I think more specifically under anti-Iron Curtain propaganda. And by that, I don't mean a, a, a set of countries. I mean a set of policies. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed out. And it doesn't really matter whether it's communists, socialists, imperialists who are doing that. Whoever's doing that, that's what this is against. Right. And it, it happens to be communists because those were the 
the guys of the time. It was imperialists 10 years earlier during the war, you know, and it could have been other people later. And so I don't see it as, first off, it isn't a propaganda piece. It falls under that heading because if your bad guys are those guys, then it's sort of, it's a checkbox kind of a thing, but that's not what it's doing. Even the warm beer thing, if that's a reality, it's a reality. If you're not allowed to talk about things, that's a reality. If you have to do something like this to leave a country that wants to, then that's a reality. Mm -hmm. And so it's largely immaterial. The antagonist in this isn't really an antagonist, like the way it's executed. Well, it's the state. Right. Sure, yeah. But the the arm of the state, Mm -hmm. as a character in this, he is like sympathized with throughout it and up to the moment before you know as he's about to be revealed as the security agent david pointed out that really great part where it's like he just wished it was all over and it fits either way when you don't know he's the security agent and you think he's the timid Mm -hmm. going along person and when you re-listen and you know he's the security agent he it still fits i just feel as a result of that everything about the escape just feels like it goes too smoothly not enough conflict Everything just kind of is resolved fairly easily. I guess for me, the the, the tension was I was expecting uh, Ostrovsky to get shot or something like that. Hmm. The, the reluctant friend who didn't want to go along with it. And that was going to like color the end of it and make the main character sad or something like that. But it didn't no. do what I expected. Even the letter, you know, the letter becomes a, a point of, you know, almost conflict where it's like you shouldn't have sent that letter what if the uncle he sent the letter to reports him? Like, is this going to bite mm-hmm. us in the ass? And then nothing comes of it, of course. But it's another effective mislead of a kind. Sure. I can't say I disagree with Jens because that's like saying, no, that's not your opinion. Yes, it is Jens's opinion. He had the reaction <laughs> he had to the film. And you know what? I didn't grow up. I, I mean, there was plenty of anti-communist propaganda, if you will. There were plenty of escape movies being made here probably many more being made in Europe, which makes perfect sense, that didn't come over here, and everything from here went over there. So, you know, Jens knew about Night Crossing before he moved to this fair country, but I don't know all the stuff he's seen. I've heard of Eleni, of course. I think the thing for me is the suspense of it is, it's more along the lines of like the end of In the Bedroom, when Tom Wilkinson Mm -hmm. is walking William Mapother through the forest. Mm -hmm. And it's all contingent on do I know Tom Wilkinson enough to know, is he actually going to shoot this guy or is he not? And I mean, I watched that, I don't know, one, three, five, ten minute walk, however long it was in the film, leaning forward, gripping the seat in front of me in the movie theater when that was on, because it's all contingent upon character. The suspense of the end is you've got four people one of whom is definitely not the, not the agent because he's the guy making the plan. And any one of the other three could be the agent and they're all in different places on the plane. And who it is matters with regard to whether this is going to pull off or not. I also thought that, uh, that Joseph, oh, what's his name? What's Orlo- this, that Joseph Ostrovsky. Ostro- 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 by the way, I, I should have said this at the beginning. We needed to use both names for the entire bloody show, <laughs> for first and last, because the last names threw us off in the show, like they did me listening to the to the program. I also thought Joseph's position in this narrative was he's going to get hurt. He's going to be the cost of this plan. So the fact that it all pulled through at the end to me isn't a. Uh, I'm not, Jens didn't call it a cop-out, but it is not a cop-out. 
it has an intimate feel that's interesting to listen to right from the beginning, right from the first scene, right from the chess game. The characters are interesting. The most party man, uh, Kojin, is just a jolly guy. And that's kind of cool. Joseph is a caring guy. Uh, Helensky is a guy with integrity. You know, so I liked that its suspense hinges on assessing these characters and not being able to know whether you're right. I liked that when you listen to it again, and people could have heard this again, a suspense has got repeated, that it still works because now it's a story of one friend who wants to do something and doesn't know that his other friend's job is to stop him. And the friend whose job it is to stop him is still 100% a friend. You know, at the end, he's not saying, I'm going back to Poland and I'm, we're going to come and get you. It's nowhere in Joseph's mind to do anything more to his friend or with regard to his friends having escaped from Poland. He's not that kind of a party guy. Mm-hmm. The more I listened to it, the more I liked it. It's so much better than it could be and than it should be, to be honest, given the way Marriage of Strangers handles marriage, the way My Dark Days handles propaganda, the way Dead Ringer handles murder. I mean, there are so many ham-fisted ways to do this. And other than the one moment that I agree with you, Clark, on the narrator at the end, which again, worked on Yavar, other than that, this is anything but ham-fisted. And you can listen to it whether you agree with communism or not, whether you agree with, whether you, if you have a hair-trigger response to anything you can label as propaganda, this is still going to work as just a drama because it's real people in a real situation acting like real people. To be honest, I liked it. I was high on it. I gave it an 8.5 for the show. Oh, nice. I really dug it. So, Jens, Mm -hmm. what do you think of this here music? Well, I think if the theme were original, like I originally assumed, this -hmm. would have been like a nine for me because I was just so blown away by like, wow, I can't believe that Jerry did this for some random radio show. This is amazing. And now that I know it is the Polish national anthem, I still think the score is very, very good. It's extremely competent. It, you know, is dramatically super effective, really well applied. I really like what he does for the narration segments versus the dramatic segments versus, you know, the emotional character moments. So everything just kind of hits. And the way that he plays with and develops that main theme is um, is really strong. So I eventually landed at a 7.5 for the score. Ah, still docking it a lot for not having an original main theme. I almost respect it more. I, I think Clark said something like this, but it's almost more impressive to me that he didn't write the theme, but he yet he made it so much his own. It feels Goldsmithian all the way through because of the harmonies and the way he's treating it. And it it's so transformed from the straightforward national anthem itself that it's not distracting, and I feel like it only adds a layer of thematic, not musical thematic, but themes of this episode, the identity of it, with it being about this melody that's Poland is not yet lost. And it's like there's, I don't know, there's hope in both, <laughs> on both sides almost with our two friends at the center of this. So yeah, I really loved it. Um, I landed at an 85 for the score. It's one of, in my opinion, Jerry's best scores for radio. It's not 1489 words by any means. It's not like some timeless masterpiece, but for a radio score, 
it's got a real journey to the musical material and some real emotional depth and, you know, interesting musical techniques in terms of the harmonies and such. So it's really high up there. And I think it's, I mean, from what I've heard, I'd say it's one of maybe Jerry's three best radio scores that he did in his early career. Yeah, it's a, uh, this is a really strong score for radio in, in part because, you know, this is a medium that in a lot of cases just doesn't lend itself to scoring uh, as easily as, you know, visual things like television and film. Um, so, so in a lot of cases, there just are not a lot of opportunities to stick much music into radio programs. And Goldsmith does have a bit more of a canvas to work with, with this one in part due to the regular narration peppered throughout it. Yeah. As you were saying, Yvar, I actually did wind up liking this one a, a little bit more, uh, once I found out that he had adapted the Polish national anthem, just because, even though I, I really liked the score beforehand, I thought it was pretty impressive. Uh, all of the pieces kind of clicked into place for me dramatically once I knew that. Like, okay, I'm 100% with him. I know exactly what he's doing and why he's doing it. And it's a really smart and effective decision. I guess I wound up a little bit lower than you guys, but I, I did really like this one. Uh, I was at a 7.5 and then wound up bumping it up to an 8. So that's where I'm at. It is a very impressive radio score. So you you started out lower than Jens and you ended up higher yeah. than Jens. <laughs> yep. Like I wonder how this would play for any Polish listeners of ours. If you're Polish and <laughs> that would be a great question. And you listen to this on archive.org or whatever, please write us at mail at goldsmithodyssey.com and let us know how it works for you if you've got your familiar national anthem being played and going on a journey, you know, a real harrowing journey throughout the course of this musical work. And that's, you know, it's a good question, too. Like, would it work as well for us if you had a radio drama? Let's say somebody's got some crazy medical situation and they're trying to flee to some foreign country that actually has, you know, a system that will pay for their issues and escape the United States and blah, 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 blah. But they need to raise the funds to do it and all this stuff. If they used a, a sad version of the national anthem throughout that, would it work or would it just feel like the most on the nose, obnoxious thing? I, I really don't know because, you know, we've all heard that song. A million times and so it's or is our national anthem just a more awkward piece of music <laughs> that would be much harder to do this way <laughs> that may be the case too but <laughs> but yeah i mean that your your personal relationship with something as with you know all the shows that yens watched when he was growing up mm -hmm. can certainly have a a big impact on the way something strikes you but not i could even... better imagine like a distorted version of yeah. america the beautiful or something that's that's strained throughout right a story like this maybe something like that but not going and listening to every country's national anthems very much in my spare time aside from the little toy globe we have that does some mm -hmm. of that this one worked quite well for me mm -hmm. it turns out that every score goldsmith ever did is based on some country's national anthem <laughs> we just haven't found them all yet right uh, I, the, the man, number is a imagine if trials last gleaming was just horribly distorted versions of the national anthem 
Mm. The boys from Brazil, you know, you've got uh, Brazil's national anthem right in there. We never even knew it. The swarm is Florida's state theme. <laughs> what I would argue to you, Jens, is that may- maybe you should go more towards your initial rating because of how it hit you on your first listen. Like, it as effectiveness as a score, it had that impact on you. And it didn't matter where that melody came from. It was effective. It wasn't, like, distracting. Yeah, but I'm disillusioned now. Yeah, okay. <laughs> sure. David, what did you think of this music? Yeah, uh, 7.5. Good, good, we agree. Do you want to talk about why? Yeah, kind of. Different reasons, I assume, though. Yeah, different reasons, yeah. I I was surprised but not disillusioned that it was the Polish National Anthem, but it wasn't wasn't the melody of that particular theme that grabbed me in the first place. It was just the the orchestration, the music as score, that I liked. I don't think I would have come away from this if if it had been Goldsmith's melody, thinking this is one of Goldsmith's best melodies. It wouldn't be on. Oh, my I list. would. I, I mean, not yeah, one of his no. best melodies overall, but like for radio or early TV, yeah, it'd be way up there. So for you, it's that. For me, it's not that. I've got a bunch of other things that are above that for me. Frontier Gentleman. Uh, Frontier Gentleman's above that for me. Totally. I'll rank Frontier Gentleman above the score overall because it has all that but, all, all that interesting original thematic material. But you know what Frontier Gentleman doesn't have is the thematic development of this. That, for me, is what makes this shocking for early Goldsmith, mid-50s Goldsmith, is the journey the melody goes through over the course of just a radio score. Mm-hmm. If you look at Frontier Gentleman, it's got the theme at the opening and the travel music and then maybe little fragments of it, and then it's at the end. But it doesn't have a journey for mm-hmm. the theme. Like Frontier Gentleman also has a narrator. J.B. Kendall is narrating himself, <laughs> uh-huh. right? And Goldsmith's approach is entirely different. He like It doesn't afford him the opportunity, I guess, to develop and have this emotional journey. True. Like this one but does. But you'll agree. And and he had three episodes to do it on that. He only had a single, you know, anthology episode here. And the theme goes on so much more interesting of a journey. But you'll agree that the best bit in this entire score is that little original clarinet lead-in that he does, you know, as part of developing that main theme. He said in part, you will, I think, understand why I'm doing this. Perhaps there are many of us here in Poland who will agree with me and others who might think I am a coward. And that if I feel so strongly about freedom, I should stay here and fight for it at home. My dear uncle, if I can accomplish any small thing in the free world, it'll be to say the things that need to be said about what is happening here. This, I'm convinced, I am more fitted for than taking up the battle on the home front. I fear I would only end up before a firing squad. I have no illusions about my strength as an underground agent. Either I am too afraid or too conscious of my own inadequacy. I think that's the best cue, but even though I really like that clarinet lead-in, I I think my favorite part is the Polish national anthem being given the warm string treatment after it. Someday, I hope that I shall be able to see you again, as you are the last of my living family. In any event, I shall think of you often as I trust you will of me kindly. You must burn this letter, as I should not want you to be involved in the event that I am either caught or that I escape. With fondest regards, your nephew, Frederick. 
Well, for my part, uh, Yavar's point doesn't apply because I'm not talking about the score. I'm talking about the theme as a theme. And the theme as a theme, this Polish national anthem redeveloped by Goldsmith, is not above the theme for Frontier Gentlemen. It's not above Miriam's theme in The Cheaters. It's not above any of the music for Mr. George. Structurally, it's nowhere near late date. So, I mean, and that's that's a structure connection. I didn't think it's structurally, it's very good. But I'm just saying... The reason I'm not where Jens is with the theme is the theme wasn't already in a high spot for me to begin with. So I didn't go, oh, this isn't him. When I found that it was the Polish national anthem, I just thought, well, that makes sense. It's an Iron Curtain story mm-hmm. about Poland. That's the music you'd use. As Goldsmith themes goes, as Goldsmith themes just through the 50s, to me, this wasn't a competitor. It's fine. But I just took it as a sort of a an imitation state theme, mm-hmm. which it turns out it's not an imitation state theme. So for me, nowhere to go. There's no down when you guys discover that. When Clark realizes that connection, I was didn't go, oh. The big difference between you and me, David, is that I really like anthemic themes. That's kind of one of my favorite things. And I know that like I've pushed a whole bunch of scores on you that are based on anthemic themes, and you're always meh about them. You're always like, eh. Don't care about Starship Troopers, so, you know, right. that's one of those things. I yeah. just like that kind of theme. I think you'd like to hear Jerry Goldsmith's main theme for Air Force One turned into the national anthem. It yes. turns out that's sure. actually That'd Russia's way national better. anthem the entire time. <laughs> That'd be amazing. <laughs> we, we, we need to write lyrics for uh, for Goldsmith's Air Force One theme now. Mm-hmm. National anthem lyrics is explicitly and have them be very over the top. Anyway, so I I don't drop, I didn't drop when that happened because that wasn't, a highlight for me. The highlight of the score for me was, and it wasn't the music itself. It's not like this is the, I'm going to play the uh, security agent album on repeat one. This It didn't hit me the way, say, the Gunsmoke albums did, Old Faces, like we did, where the, when mm-hmm. I played those nine minutes over and over, it just grew on me as lovely music. It's just good music. But it's also, the development is interesting. The drama of it is interesting. The judiciousness of it. You know, you don't talk about him knowing when to stay out of the way. Well, it's 1956. This isn't 1974 when Chinatown is 35 minutes long. It's not 1970 when Patton is 30 minutes long. This is Goldsmith knowing when to stay out of the way in 1956. And it's in part because he's been writing some scores for radio and he's been supervising you know, where he's got the four record players and he's needle dropping. And so he has been scoring radio for a very long time. So mm-hmm. whether he's writing the music or not, his sense of where music should and shouldn't go is razor sharp already. Mm-hmm. And he's been doing TV with the same thing for at least a couple of years at this point, too, with Climax. Correct. He knows when to stay out of the way not just as a checklist, people are talking, stay out of the way. He knows when a scene is good. He knows when a scene will be better if he doesn't score it. And I think in this show, you have exactly two kinds of scenes. You have scenes that are better because he scores them and scenes that are better when he doesn't and really no middle ground. And he nailed the whole thing. Mm -hmm. He nailed the emotions he helps the suspense. I mean, the music is a part of why we think what we think of certain characters. So I have a lot of respect for it, and I like it, and it did not drop for me. But you ended up where Jens was at the end, I think. I ended up where Jens was because if it was just music for music's sake, it wouldn't be very high for me, but it's just so well 
handled. It's so masterfully placed and used. And in the show, which is its job, it's absolutely doing its job. So Goldsmith ratios for the show. Jens, 5. Clark, 8. Yavar, 8. David, 8.5. Divides out to 7.38. The score... Jens and David, 7.5. Clark, 8. Yvar, 8.5. Divides out to 7.88. That's so interesting that Jens rated the score high, much higher than the episode, and you rated the episode like a whole point higher than the score. Indeed. Uh, and then uh, divided by 7.38. And that brings us to 1.06. Okay. Right. So... That feels fair. They're almost they're, yeah, pretty close. They really are together. pretty close. Yeah, I, I think we all can agree on that. I'm glad Jens and David balanced each other <laughs> out on that because I like both a lot. <laughs> Jens, you wanted to talk about availability. Yes, Yavar keeps mentioning archive.org, which indeed is the best. You know, if if you just need to listen to it and you don't want to spend any money, that obviously is the best option. Uh, however, I do think that the version that we're pulling from is a little bit nicer sounding than the archive.org one. And if you want that version, the source is a website called The Vintage Radio Place. And the address is otrsite.com. And it's a very, when you go to it, it's uh, kind of a blast from the past. It's a website, obviously, that hasn't been updated since about 2000. But the guy running it will still fulfill orders. And he's got a pretty amazing selection of old radio stuff that he will burn on to... Actually... I think they may even be pressed CDs. They're they're pretty good, what he sends you. So I just wanted to put that out there. If you want to spend 20 bucks or whatever on two episodes of radio, you know, by Jerry Goldsmith on a CD, uh, you can do that there. And I want to add that archive.org's benefit is that it's about as comprehensive as you can get. If So Suspense had something like 945 episodes, 900 of which I think are still existent, and I think that's what's on archive.org. But if you're going to listen to radio in general, old-time radio in general, I'd say your best bet if you just want to do it right now as opposed to buying a CD, if you're not you know, like wanting to archive it, like if it's a show you love, like we would say with 1,489 words or any of these, go to YouTube, YouTube the show, you'll find three or four or five different entries. Open them up in new tabs, play each one for a few seconds. You are going to hear sound quality differences. And you might find one that sounds better than the CD, but you have the opportunity usually of trying a few out. There'll be some where it's just cruddy and some where it's crystal clear and it could just be different sources, different recordings, or just somebody went through and did some processing of the sound and did a good job. But if you are just a casual listener, the sound thing can be a barrier, but YouTube is pretty great about having two or three options. And usually one of them really kind of stands out. That's just general. But if you're crazy like Jens and you're, you're willing to spend money, like it does sound better yeah. on his CD because like he sent us a photo in the chat today and on the, you know, image that the guy had put on the CD, he put remastered by and it, like, it actually does sound remastered at least mm -hmm. compared to the online options we've been able mm -hmm. to find. So, I mean, I think it's a better source to begin with. Yeah. I, I appreciate you making the expenditure, Jens. Oh, yeah. happy to. He's a big uh, radio fan and he's acquired, you know, the best sounding versions and then I guess done his own further processing on them, mm -hmm. it seems like. That stuff's good. As David was saying with old time radio, you know, you never really know because you would think, you know, if you buy a set of professionally produced 
uh, and restored shows from, you know, Radio Spirits or one of these other companies that does these, you would think, okay, well, this is the best it's going to sound because, you know, it's been properly handled here. And still, uh, you will find some just in random places on the internet, YouTube being the most likely one, that do sound better than those sources. So there's a lot of, a lot of homework involved. Well, but I'm saying with these, if you know the episodes you want, the homework's actually pretty easy. You get three or four options yeah. right at the top of the list, open them in new tabs. It takes you about 30 seconds to go, ah, I'm going to listen to the third one. And then you just let it play. Yeah, fair. All right, so, so that's availability. Uh, what's next? How about that uh, mailbag, Yavar? Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. Since our spotlight on the burbs, we heard from somebody we'd like to speak with in the future on the podcast, Australian composer Cameron Patrick, who we'd noted in the past for contributing some additional music to Looney Tunes back in action, as well as writing his dissertation on Star Trek The Motion Picture. And maybe we can throw a link for that to folks in our uh, episode description. But why don't we read this interesting email he sent us? Yeah, um, I'll note this uh, email has been sort of condensed and edited for time, basically from three separate emails that he sent. But he said, gentlemen, greetings from Sydney, Australia, where I now teach full time and live. I just wanted to connect and thank you for the mention and kind words about the Star Trek The Motion Picture thesis and the recent Burbs Odyssey Spotlight episode. I was driving home Friday night and had been listening to the episode over two days of car trips back and forth to school and almost drove off the road when you mentioned my name as the conversation shifted to Looney Tunes back in action, Jerry's decline in health and bringing Debney in, etc. I honestly almost crashed the car, haha. In another bizarre connection to this episode, I can coincidentally offer some insight into the Burbs jingly jangly percussion issue we were trying to figure out. This is uh, me speaking, not Cameron. We were trying to figure out what exactly that was on that show. Yeah, we thought it was Emil Richards. Right. And he writes, I did the scoring for the motion pictures and television program at USC in 1988 and 89. Jerry was one of our guest lecturers. Naturally, I was over the moon. He invited the class to a couple of recording sessions over the years, specifically Star Trek V and The Burbs. He also gave us a set of sketches from The Burbs. I remember vividly the set effect came from piano and synth genius Mike Lang's rig on the stage. He had attached PDFs of the first pages of the sketches for 1M1 Nightwork, main title. <laughs> 1M2, the window, home delivery. M5 good neighbors where the effect is indicated in bar one in each case. In night work, it's indicated as 2D50.35. In the window and home delivery, it's just D50 space 35. And in good neighbors, it's D53 number 35. And he says what all that means is that it was a Roland D50 patch designated number 35. Exactly where they got the patch number 35, I have no idea. I'm not a synth guy, but looked at some vids on YouTube, and it doesn't seem to be a preset from any original Roland sound cards. I think it might be a unique original one he and or Mike came up with, but might be wrong. 
Unfortunately, we lost Mike last year, so the answer might have gone with him. The consensus seems to be that Jerry's philosophy was the people who program these presets know what they're doing, so why not use them? Maybe he tweaked or had Mike tweak out-of-the-box presets. He certainly experimented with combining them, so I guess he'd give Mike, Ralph Grierson, Randy Kerber, or Tom Darter the patches to load up on whatever synth, and in the case of the Burbs, the jangly percussion was the 35th patch on Mike's Roland D50. So some great insight into that uh, mystery that had confounded all of us on the Burbs from Cameron Patrick. That blew my mind to find out. I could have sworn it was actual percussion of some kind, and you know we had a nice conversation about emo richards because of it so i'm glad about our mistake Mm -hmm. but it's amazing to find out that it was mike lang with the keyboard doing all that yeah it did sound like something physical in the room didn't it Mm -hmm. yeah i I so wish i'd had a chance i wish i'd had a chance to ask mike about it but at least we spoke to him for the score masters i'm I'm glad we talked to him for that that's a pretty pretty special little thing just for the panel of guests you and the legacy of john williams assembled alone Mm -hmm. uh that shout out to maurizio he also did the editing on that that's a really neat show Mm mm-hmm and and David added all the music for our audio version, of course. So shout out to David for that if you listen to the audio. So five years ago, Clark and Jens decided to do a podcast called The Goldsmith Odyssey, invited Yavar. I discovered it, I want to say, three episodes in, so I'm not the earliest listener. The earliest known listener is Carlos Rafael Rivera. I joined the show as a guest a few months in, almost half a year in, and then um, when Yen stepped down, I replaced him four years ago this month. And so this is basically the Goldsmith Odyssey's uh, sort of five-year anniversary as we record this particular month. And we wanted to talk about the show a little bit. And so we had some questions that we wrote for ourselves. Guys, what are some of the favorite episodes we've produced? I've got two nominations for this one, for both of which I think you and Yuvar deserve the primary producing credit. Yuvar, obviously, for arranging the guests and being the front-facing voice of the podcast, and you, David, for the technical and the editorial production. And those two episodes are the Paul Verhoeven interview. Oh, wow. And the Star Trek promotion. Paul Verhoeven, Clark gets the credit for that. Did Clark set that up? Yeah, he's the man there. Yeah, he did. Wow, okay. It was pure luck. Yeah, Clark got Verhoeven, I pulled in Marshall and Joe Dante. Otherwise, it's generally Yavar who's doing, he's the agent of the show. He's reaching out. Yeah, he's reaching out and has all the contacts and uh, is the asker. Right. Although I can't get credit for reaching out to Carlos Rafael Rivera because he reached out to me after listening to our first <laughs> yeah episode. Well, there we go. Yeah, I know. He sent me a Facebook message. So, so this is the exception that proves the rule then, the Paul Verhoeven interview since uh, Clark made that happen somehow but that one you know we were all in it of course and Verhoeven is a big hero of mine so having him hang with us for an hour it just felt like a huge deal to me a once in a lifetime thing and then of course he turned out to be just really friendly and funny and brutally honest yeah gosh wasn't he Uh, sweet yeah he was wonderful just a complete delight and he told us he only had half an hour in advance and then he spent a whole hour with us so that was amazing when he, for the first time, disappears, you know, or for the first time he disappears, he disappears, and uh, they, they're doing it, and it goes well, and etc. 
the music for the science. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they're all standing around the bed, isn't it? And he slowly disappears. He had to hit a lot of subtle changes and complexity in that scene, I think. Yeah, but he, but but when he played it, certainly at that time with all kinds of digital instruments. He elevated the film for me to uh, an acceptable. <laughs> From bad to acceptable. <laughs> yeah, that was. I never teared up with other composers. There I did, you know, because I felt he was giving me something that's so, more or less saved the movie. Right. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Wait, so you've, you, the only composer collaborator you've ever teared up for is Jerry Goldsmith, and it yeah. was on Hollow Man. And it was on Hollow Man, which is probably not the, wow. the best film that you can imagine. But yeah, but it's also possible, of course, you know, that mm-hmm. that worked that way. And, and, and I know that it is a B movie. And in retrospect, it was also doing that movie for me a sign afterwards, one or two years after the, the movie came out, that I decided that I should not go that way. That's not what I want. And then I, I, I made the three movies in, in Europe, yeah. It was just a, an amazing time to be there. And then, of course, we spent a lot of time in editing. All the credit to David here of just making it the best version of that interview that it could possibly be. I really loved how that all came together. And while I'm complimenting you, David, Star Trek The Motion Picture, so far of everything you've done, probably your magnum opus. And it's not even a subject that's particularly close to my heart. You know, it's not like I'm a super fan of Star Trek The Motion Picture. And I like the theatrical version as is. Mm-hmm. I, I'm so attached to it, in fact, from childhood that I've never really had an interest in things being fixed about it. And I watched the director's cut on DVD, you know, once back in the day and was like, eh, it was fine. But listening to you and Mike, mm-hmm. you know, I realized that... Did we change your mind? I'll just say, even if I were objectively right, which I'm not, I could never win that argument or even have an in-depth conversation of that argument with David uh, just because of his knowledge is so thorough that my feelings would not have a chance against his facts, you know? <laughs> it, it makes sense that Mike knows this movie inside out because he worked on it, right? But I was just genuinely blown away by how you just seem to know every line, every shot, and you have thoughtful opinions. Clear the bridge, Captain. <laughs> you have thoughtful opinions about every tiny choice <laughs> on this thing, so. Yeah. Well, thanks. That's really sweet. The assembled crew scene, and this is the thing, this is one of the scenes where there's a lot done. It's a tiny little scene. It feels like the exact same scene. There's a crew reaction shot taken away. He doesn't save you or off a second time because Uhura knows how to do her job. There's a lot done in that little moment that to me, I, I I I had to watch them back to back to see what had changed because I knew there were changes, couldn't feel them. It just felt like a dramatic scene. Uh, Kirk doesn't say... We assume that there is a vessel of some type at the heart of the cloud. You know, there was a lot of fear at the time when they were making the film, all the way from the script through the finishing it, that uh, things were... that the story clarity was not there. Because it's a, it's a really kind of kooky story to ra- sort of wrap your mind around. But, uh, you know, he was worried... There was a lot of worry that the story clarity was not there. So they hit you over the head a few times with an object being at the center of the cloud. Right. You get a computer saying it on Epsilon 9, then you get the guy in Epsilon 9 saying it again, 
Or no, Kirk actually says it to the crew before Epsilon 9 even says it. Well, he says it once and then they say, we can only hope there's yes, a life form is, yeah. at the heart of the vessel or something yes, like that. Uh, yeah. Right. So too much pointing to make sure that the story is clear to people. And Bob said, I'd really like it if we could save that for Spock. No offense, Yavar. I kept forgetting you were even there. It was so much the David and Mike show. I mean, to be honest, Jens, they recorded for almost six hours, and I think I was there for th- the first three of it. But okay, wow. David and Mike Madison kept talking, so that's why I disappear for long stretches is because I literally wasn't there for the conversation. So peek behind the curtain <laughs> for our listeners, maybe. But I think David did some really impressive editing, moving things around so I don't just mysteriously vanish in the middle. And it feels like we just kind of take some turns and, and I have some some stretches there. So, yeah, it really came together well, thanks to his editing. It just came off like David and Mike were just rolling, just rolling the entire Yeah, time. like I moved out of the way because the really major motion picture nerds went at it. Exactly. Yeah, no, it, it's because I wasn't there. I actually really loved the film, too, and I love the DE. But I'm glad that David was able to get so in-depth with Mike after I had to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it worked out really well. And yeah, David still knows the movie better than I do, but I know and love it well. And actually, I grew up with the special longer version. So I was super happy when Mike did that Mm -hmm. and worked on making the sound better and getting a good stereo thing for it and fixing that one scene so it didn't have the set. So like... I, maybe the special longer version is the worst version of the movie, but it's what I grew up with. So there are things I like about all three cuts. And I mean, still, the theatrical cut is the best for the scene in the officer's lounge, you know, like... <laughs> exactly. That is a little niggling part that bothers me, the effects <laughs> for that part in the DE. But overall, I just adore the DE and it really uh, fixes all the pacing issues for me completely. Mm-hmm. And to affirm you both, I mean, the reason I know the film well is because I also love the 79 version, which isn't the first version that I memorized, if you will, from watching over again. You know, I saw it initially that way, but then the first version I really connected with was the special longer version that Yavar is mm. talking about because I bought the videotape. It had been so long since I'd seen it that it felt new. It has the emotional parts. It has the emotional parts. People say that movie is emotionless. Everybody is like, oh, thank God, the Wrath of Khan fixed the emotionless problem and i'm like no no it was there it just didn't make the film cut it just didn't make the theatrical cut well that's yeah. why it's not, not there yeah i'm sorry go back and watch the corbamite maneuver go back and watch balance of terror go back and watch some of the very first episodes of star trek and they're just as quote emotionless because they're about the suspense of the moment they're mm-hmm. about the mystery as this is i first really knew the special longer version from the videotape, because once I got it, I was like, cheapers, I haven't, I mean, this is just so different from what I remember, and it's better than I remember, and I just watched it over and over, and then, of course, the Blu-rays and the, you know, the really good-looking, the letterbox VHS tapes, the first time you could really watch it widescreen, it was, it was never that. So once it became widescreen, I knew the theatrical cut, and there's, and as I said to Mike, there's not a cut of this movie I don't love. And I think we make a decent argument in a couple of spots for what Mike calls sense memory. Mm-hmm. You know, he says, I think unless you have a sense memory issue and you just know the original so well that there's just no, and 
you know, to use the joke, no comparison. And I talk about why I I have a hard time watching the Star Trek Wrath of Khan director's cut. I'm right there with you, David. I know. Shots off. Yeah. yeah, and that's the... Different takes. And that's the version they ran when we went to see Shatner on Sunday. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no. Uh, well, you know, and it turns out it wasn't as bad as I'd remembered. There, But the different takes and the different rhythms... There's an argument to be made for if, if you grew up on the version you grew up on, then how can all the changes not be too distracting to, for it to just be a movie for you? Mm-hmm. That's a legitimate problem to have with it. But if you don't happen to have that problem, and I think because I had two cuts to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyway, but I, I absolutely affirm you guys, your background on it. I mean, if you you love the 79, more power to you, man. And hey, you've got it on a Blu-ray and it looks great. I've now. got 4K versions of both now. So You've got four, that's right, of all three. I, really, I don't probably. have the long, long one because I hate the packaging on that version. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So favorite episodes of the Goldsmith Odyssey, Clark. Well, very broadly speaking, in general, the regular episodes are my favorite type of show because they're the ones that kind of form the backbone of the Odyssey for me. But my actual personal favorite individual episodes are all different kind of things. One, I have to agree 100% with Jens, is is your recent conversation, uh, the conversation you and Yavar had with Mike Matasino on Star Trek The Motion Picture. That is a fantastic show. And one... That I got so absorbed in, you know, at times I forgot I was listening to a show for feedback purposes. You know, I was just lost in the show because it was that absorbing. If they inevitably, eventually repackage and resell this movie again, as they will, they should stick it on a fourth bonus disc or something <laughs> and put it in there. Because it really, it, it really is the best conversation I have heard about this movie. And there have been a lot of conversations about this movie. But yeah, that's a great episode. Another one I really like is Yen's and David's Field Report with Justin Freer and Ron Berbella. It was really cool to have the Odyssey kind of go out in the field for a change. But what I really love about that one is it's just a natural, free-flowing conversation. And it's wonderful. Like it, It doesn't feel like most of our other shows where you can tell there's kind of a structure, there's questions we've prepared to ask and i'm sure you guys did your your prep work and your homework but that episode just feels like a friendly conversation between pals that ends up producing some great nuggets of information and some great insights and it's just a a really wonderful feeling that one has yeah that was so cool ron got to tag along oh gosh yeah he's so great to have around you know a soft timpani mallet will give you a much rounder sound Mm -hmm. a harder timpani mallet will give you a much more very angular, not in your face, but right. it comes at you a lot faster. The difference between like a boom and a rat-a-tat-tat almost. Yeah, faster sure. Tack. Sure. It's, yeah, the, it doesn't resonate the same way. And for me, it was, again, Broody's marching on the field. He's marching mm. back. That's a martial thing that you need there, a martial quality. And I, and I did change a little bit of the, the brass attack there just to be a little bit more robust. I love that moment. It's arguably my favorite moment in the whole movie. I mean, you know, obviously when Rudy gets carried off the field, Jerry's music turns it from gold to platinum, X, 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 you know, like, so that's a moment, of course, but that moment that he comes back on the field, what Jerry did there in B-flat, it's just so good, so good. You know, I I got to watch Jerry do the rehearsal the night before his Carnegie Hall concert, 
in the basement of a church in uptown Manhattan. Wow. And I watched him tune the salad bowls for the Planet of the Apes. And he had he started with a regular mallet. He said, no, I want felted mallets. And, and yeah. it made a big difference. And so amazing that you guys pulled that together and made it happen in person. Like the logistics are totally different than recording at your computer at home. Yeah. And you made it work. You you had a, a microphone in the room and you made it work. And we were down one mic. So kudos to you. The, yeah, we even had technical issues. It was it was right. not the best the best scenario. Well, I'm so glad I could contribute in some small way to making that happen because what you two did with it was wonderful. Oh yeah, you did all the diplomacy up front so kudos to you on that one for yeah, sure yeah well I, I wasn't able to be there in person though and you two just carried it you did such a great job that whole trip is one of my favorite memories so you know that episode will always have a place in my heart just because it reminds me of you know when i got to hang out with david yeah same here and when you two met that way yeah by the way jens and i are mm -hmm. the only well and that's not true uh, Jens is the only Odyssey guy that I've met personally. He's also the only Odyssey guy that I've met personally on more than one occasion. And coincidentally, <laughs> the only Odyssey person I've met personally. So, yeah. So Jens is at the center of it all. Yeah, he's the anchor. That is pretty hilarious that the three current regular hosts yeah. have never met, but we've all met Jens. And, you know, listeners, we're all in three different states, you know. And, of course, the middle two years of this show, there was COVID. So even if we'd had, you know, when Justin was originally planning to do this, I think, Yavar, you were going to try to come mm -hmm. out too. And I know, Clark, you'd consider I, I arranged it yeah. twice. I was going to go and I, until yeah. my uh, job situation changed and right. then I could not do it anymore. Yeah. yeah. The other thing that made me happy about that episode is I finally got to play some Cuthbert Island <laughs> on the Ghost Myth Odyssey. <laughs> so that's something. And then I, I had one more. Oh, I had one more if I could. Oh, yeah, please. Just, uh, I also just wanted to say I have a lot of fondness for Yavar's interview with Leonard Slatkin. Oh, yeah. My first one. In part because, you know, Leonard is a very thoughtful and lovely guest, but more to me because that one just demonstrated right off the bat what a capable interviewer Yavar was and how well he would do with those. And he just kind of picked up that ball and ran with it from there. But uh, yeah, that was a, that Aww, was a really nice one early on. You know, people completely forgot about Alfred Newman. Oh, yeah. Even among film music fans, I don't, I mean, they know of him, but uh, I'm surprised at how when a new Alfred Newman release comes out, it just doesn't seem to sell as rapidly as a Bernard Herrmann or, or a Korngold or a Rocha from the same period. And Alfred Newman is quite possibly my favorite Golden Age film composer. Absolutely. And not only that, but not only doesn't it sell well, but if you talk to most musicians, they think of him more as a conductor than a composer. He liked to think of himself, I think, more as a conductor. Yeah. Even though conducting came more naturally to him, I think I've read that composing was rather difficult. I love Alfred Newman's compositions, and you could tell the artistry and craft and effort that went into them. Something like Captain from Castile, which I think he spent a year on. The march from Captain Castile, when I was in high school, was called Los Angeles High. That was our kind of anthem, you know, whenever we, I would play in the band. Really, you had it before USC did, or? Oh yeah, well, no, no. Uh, well, this is 1958. So maybe, yeah, maybe you you were the first to adopt it. I wonder. It's possible. 
Yeah, because we didn't connect ourselves with USC yet. It's got to be close to the same time, but we would play that. Bum, 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 bum. That was like our big march that we played. We didn't want to play Sousa. <laughs> we wanted to play that. Yeah, I'm going to back that up because that was, I mean, my understanding, and, and Yavar, you can correct me or detail me where I'm wrong, but I know you've studied film, obviously, to some degree. I think you've got some musical study background. Am I wrong about that? A little bit, at least? I mean, I probably studied music more on my own than, yeah, than well, film. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, you, you, so Yavar... And I love classical music. You worked in I've, the classical yeah. music section of... Um, no, I, of a, I was uh, the manager of a, classical, a store dedicated to classical music. There we go. There wasn't even a section. It was literally all we sold, except we had some show tunes, and I added a bunch of film scores to the selection. Oh, that's fu- see, yeah, which is different. I was thinking you were like in the classical section of like warehouse music or something. So I didn't have it right. But the point is, Yavar's personal background lends to having a knowledge of this performance of that classical piece and that performance of that classical piece and this label and that label. And that knowledge, it's one of those things where you can hear, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes into the interview a slight gear shift in Leonard Slatkin where he realizes, oh, wait, I can talk to this guy and he's going to know what I'm talking about. And he opens, he doesn't, it's not like he wasn't open before, but it wasn't a polite, it wasn't a, how do I say this interview? I think he just relaxed Hmm. because he realized I'm going to, when I mention things, this guy is going to know what they are. And there's something that put him at ease that made the rest of that interview like he like he probably doesn't get to do that very often. He probably gets to do that with academics, but but he probably doesn't get to do that with just people who want to talk music. And so what a nice thrill it was to just be able to be a music lover and still talk knowledgeably. And that's because of what you bring to the table. Oh, thanks. I also want to give a shout out to Jens for his great editing on that because that conversation was actually recorded in two parts. I think he only had like an hour to spare the first time and we had more to talk about. So actually the second half of my conversation with Leonard Slacken, you know, I was only able to do these on my days off at the time. And it happened on a day off on the same day that I recorded the Cliff Eidelman interview. That's right. Like I did one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And Jens took both parts of the Leonard Slacken interview and really melded them together into one well, thank you. seamless finished episode. Yeah. So Yeah, I remember that one being kind of challenging because there was a lot of backtracking and a lot of overlap. So it often became a, okay, they're talking about the same thing in both of these. Mm-hmm. I'm going right. to pick the better take, try and match these up. And there was really a lot of reshuffling. Yeah, you Not that it. we don't do that all the time anyway, but you know. <laughs> yeah, we never backtrack or repeat <laughs> ourselves in the same recording yet. So I don't know what you're talking exactly. about. Exactly. So Yavar, what yeah. do you have for favorite episodes? Okay, so I, I want to give uh, a couple shout outs to some early episodes where I really feel we hit our stride. And that is, first of all, Peck's Bad Girl and The Sergeant and the Lady, <laughs> episode seven. The things we watched were rough and imperfect, we'll say, but it was one of the most fun conversations we've ever had on the Goldsmith Odyssey. I felt so comfortable with Clark and Jens at that point, you know, and we were just a couple months Mm -hmm. into doing this podcast and we were so at ease, you know, and Jens as an editor was like, he was making huge strides. Like he made a big leap forward with episode five on a marriage of strangers where he was incorporating Goldsmith, you know, interview clips. And then I think, 
maybe Peck's Bad Girl and Sergeant the Lady was the first one where we started laying in clips of the show more like a little bit and lines and stuff because yeah there was just entertaining stuff and i feel like everything just really clicked for it and it's one of our least listened to regular episodes because of the obscurity of the subjects but people should really check that one out because that was just uh, a riot which leads to the next important scene where uh, tori is attempting to persuade her best friend louise that she could gain some confidence by wearing lipstick. And this whole spiel eventually turns into a general lesson on how to get boys to notice you, culminating in Tori teaching Louise an alluring walk. I don't like this scene. Such a clunky cornball bit, and the score really accentuates that, I think. And Goldsmith does what the scene demands. He does what he was asked to do, but it just underscores literally what a dumb scene this is, honestly. <laughs> yeah, it is. But he gets some flexible treatment for the main theme in it, so that's at least a little entertaining musically. I mean, you get to hear this kind of, you know, sultrier version here, and then you get this clunky, awkward-sounding music for the other girl's failed attempt at a sultry walk. And another comedic transition tag at the end. Yep. <laughs> Bringing it all home. This is maybe the point where I, I have to admit that I actually enjoy Peck's Bad Girl. <laughs> <laughs> While recognizing that it's bad? Yes, it crosses over into So Bad It's Good territory for me. Just right here at this moment? Um, this is <laughs> the scene, definitely. And then along those same lines, I really loved david's first episode with us when he was just a guest on episode 11 yes. man on the beach and the fair-haired boy mainly for man on the beach because again there was so much hilarity <laughs> in just how inept <laughs> that was done but it was for me in an entertaining way like maybe it was painful to watch and experience but it wasn't painful to talk about because it was <laughs> so much fun with all three of you there and david you know fit right in that with his very first mm -hmm. appearance he felt like one of the gang and we just kind of impromptu brought him in he was originally supposed to debut on the cbs music library one because he compiled all that stuff but we just brought him in early and it worked out great to have him on two in a row but you know talking about what a rich guy joe probably is to be able to afford all of this his character suddenly makes a little bit more sense to me you know, most private investigators in old TV shows and movies, they kind of carry this little chip on their shoulder and seem a little downtrodden and cynical. This guy does not at all. He has this eccentric confidence. So he's more like a Richard Branson private investigator type, not a down-on-his-luck typical P.I. Until we get to the end of the episode and we discover his secret pain that he holds within, he, he reveals <laughs> that he bears his soul to someone. We discover it early on. It is talked about throughout the episode. Four times. Oh, yeah, but we don't find out just how 
heartbroken he is about it. Oh my gosh, it's like this central tenet of the show. <laughs> he made it through police training only to be rejected from police duty because he was like half an inch too short. Right. Yep. Not regulation. If that was really going to be a disqualifying factor, wouldn't the first thing they would do before they train you as a policeman be to find out how, that you, how tall you, are? you know, qualify? They say you shrink a little bit as you age. Maybe he spent so many years training, and then by the end of it, he's like, oh no, I'm a little shorter than I was. Or he lifted something up and his spine telescoped. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, hey, Joe, did you, did you lose a vertebra or something? <laughs> So maybe we want to um, talk about the music for the... If the writer of this pilot had just shifted some of these lines around, he could have had something sensible. But it comes off as, how could you be so irresponsible to prescribe sleeping pills to a woman who couldn't sleep? I had to. She might have been suicidal. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a complete mess. It's like this was not written by someone who is, you know, familiar with human conversation. <laughs> One thing does not follow another as it should. And the only timely thing in this scene is the arrival of the corpse to emphasize the point that maybe she will die. Some subtle symbolism. She could be suicidal. Wheel through corpse, wheel through corpse. That's actually a very police squad kind of gag. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> it's funny to see that sort of thing not on purpose. Now see, I still kind of have trauma flashbacks to that man on the beach I recording <laughs> mostly <laughs> because it, that was two houses ago i feel like we spent four For and a half hours on that one or something crazy two houses ago we we did and I, I recorded in a closet and in that closet we had i had a vent right above my head and the air conditioning noises would be too loud so i always turned off the air conditioning then before we recorded or you'd pick it up on the recording and it was so hot and stuffy in that closet, and we had been talking about this thing that I hated for so long. <laughs> and somewhere around the three, three and a half hour mark, I was just like, let it stop, please. But here's the stop. thing, Clark, it, about you suffering for your art, is that you sounded so good in those early episodes. <laughs> you sound better in those episodes than you sound now. Well, I had a I had a better microphone in those episodes. I had a really nice micro I, I had a $200 microphone and now I have a $30, $40 microphone, but but anyway, I did sound better for a reason. I even had I had foam uh, <laughs> pasted to the walls of that closet to make it sound better. <sighs> that was a whole a whole other thing. All right, I want to share shout out one more favorite for myself and that is the two-part Carlos Rafael Rivera. Of we course. split it into the interview part because we couldn't help but talk to him for two hours because we loved his work, especially on the Queen's Gambit, so much. And it was so exciting for us to get advance access. You know, he got us advance access through Netflix to see it, you know, a month before it was released to the public. And we recorded that in advance and it was so exciting. And he was just such an amazing guy and gave us all a masterclass thematic overview section for the Rawhide episode score, which is one of the best TV scores of Jerry's we've covered as well. And so, yeah, that was like, as edited, it was like over five hours long because we did two recording sessions and it was just an epic and flew by listening to it. Like it, it's such a pleasure to listen to. And I think that's maybe still the best regular episode we've done. Thanks in a large part to him. I mean, it's the, the dominant idea in the score. Yeah, and this is the kind of thing that I noticed in this episode generally, that Jerry Goldsmith tends to sort of 
hint at something and then he lays it out. And uh, the theme almost has its own organic growth where from a, a small three-note statement to a phrase and then, of course, a fully developed uh, state as we go throughout the episode. So if you guys like, I could play you just maybe the first appearance of the theme or a hint at the theme. And then I'm going to skip around with my DJ equipment and play you just sort of uh, the instances of the theme that y- if you like. Yes. Um, so we can become used to hearing it and recognize it when it appears throughout the cues when we discuss them later. The first appearance is uh, during the cue called The Old Man and at about 30 second mark. Uh, That's just the first three notes that are gonna be presented. So here we go. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's all you get. <laughs> but then it will happen again. As a matter of fact, it's it's presented at about the minute mark of that same cue. And it's not even on trumpet quite. It's hinted quietly. And then the trumpet comes in and plays it. Rise right up to those dead mountains. See if we can find... There you go. Did you hear that? Mm-hmm. Right? Just quickly. Rise right up to those dead mountains. See if we can find a path. But right there, the trumpet comes in and really does it. Here we go. Rise. Right up those dead mountains, see if we can find a pass ourselves. Yay! <laughs> and then it appears... A little bit of Rio Conscious at the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's funny, because we'll talk about that, thing, that bit material later. Recording with Carlos was probably the most enjoyable recording. Because, you know, before we recorded, he was uh, emailing me, was like, hey, can we test out? I think it was Zoom or Skype or whatever. I just want to make sure it works. And I was like, yeah. And we we connected immediately. And he and I talked for like an hour about doing the show. And he's like, well, I've got my die out and I've got these clips. And I'm like, you've got clips. He's like, yeah, I pulled clips up so I can play them in the show. You're going to play clips in the show? And we were just talking about life. And I mean, I'm like, I think I've got a friend here and we haven't even recorded the show yet. And then we recorded the show, which was supposed to be, here's a half hour about your life. And now let's talk about Rawhide for the next 90 minutes. And the half hour about your life was, you know, two hours of really interesting music filled discussion. He was such a partner on the show. It was really strange. Like we've had other people, I think Mike Medicino is kind of a partner on the Star Trek show. He he helped us afterwards with it too in some nice ways but my first experience with that was carlos who's just such a lovely guy and that was present in planning to record in recording in doing another recording about rawhide and being so cool about that and before we started recording he gave me about 45 minutes of tech support because my audacity wasn't working properly that day and so our recording was dramatically delayed uh and he was game for it unfazed by it and uh very helpful through that he, process and he won an emmy that year you know <laughs> <laughs> that's i mean come right. on and just what a terrific guy and you know and as as yavar pointed out kind of the the show's first fan you know but what what you're a fan of us and maybe not us, not me saying that, but of you guys, of you three guys. And I also want to underline this thing about, you You know, when I first found you guys, it was clearly, there were three episodes, right? That's when I found you, because I had three in a row, and then it was every two weeks. And I emailed you right off the bat and was like, here are all the things you guys are doing right that other podcasts don't do for like a year or two. And at a certain point, I want to say, it might have been before PEX, but I don't know, 
I think it was before PEX, there's a point where Yavar was like, oh, I think we're so much better now. I'm really embarrassed about those first three episodes. I'm like, what are you talking about? And it took me a couple of years of doing the show and hearing the show to finally go back and listen to the first few episodes and go, oh, and the O oh isn't, yes, they sucked. It's because you didn't. It's what you were doing <laughs> was what, you know, Jens and I talked about later when I gave him a hard drive full of Siskel and Ebert stuff. And what you were doing was you were doing kind of NPR, which is what they did. You know, those guys are the most freewheeling. They're not known for being measured. They're known, you know, they're known incorrectly for like bickering, which they did, you know, once every six episodes. But you know, they loved movies. They talked about movies. They were very much themselves, but not in their first four or five episodes. In the first four or five episodes, they, they're like, hello, my name is Roger Ebert, and I'm the film critic for the Chicago Sun-Times, and uh, this is going to be a serious show about film discussion. And I'm Gene Siskel, and uh, we work for rival newspapers, but we agree on one thing, that cinema is important. And you're like, What? Who are you guys, right? But it's because they're doing a show not being themselves yet, right? Yeah. You guys were good at doing a show. But I, what I heard, when I got more used to, we can be ourselves and still be professional and interesting, and went back, I was like, oh, there's the difference. They haven't sort of wound down. And it's only like three episodes, and they're not bad. They're just, they're only different in context. Mm-hmm. So I understand why Yavar likes Pex, although I think, I thought Face of a Fugitive was the first one where you felt like there was a bit of a corner turn. Mm-hmm. That was definitely a step forward from yeah. where we were before. We were getting comfortable with the new chronological format we were doing and stuff. But I think episode five, Marriage of Strangers, was Jens's huge step forward as an editor because he did so many more complex things with it. And then... As an ensemble, I feel like we really came together on Peck's Bad Girl of all right. things. And Jens is just so fun to hear in that one, laughing at Peck's and stuff. So I like the Carlos episodes. And as far as enjoyable to record, uh, the expanded archival collection, which is a really clumsy name for oh, yeah. the last time the four of us were together doing this was a lot of fun huh. and, and fun to record. And I think a good listen because, it, you know, we were talking – it wasn't, we have to talk about this topic because this is the name of our show and we have to talk about this episode. It was, hey. It was a loose conversation. What's come out since the show has existed that we never covered? You know, it was like a pre-show mm-hmm. for all the soundtrack spotlights that were about to start. Yeah. I mean, I originally conceived the soundtrack spotlight subseries. It was combination inspired by that gold nugget and our interviews of um, Chris Malone and... Neil S. Balk. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what if we did a combined thing and we had guests who worked on the things and talked about the releases as they came out? Mm-hmm. But I don't think I would have gotten there without us having done those interviews together, David, and the, all four of us on the Goldsmith releases. So, yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you pointing that one out. It's harder for me to have favorite episodes because of the editing. And it's just that like, so I think that the Star Trek episode's probably pretty good. I liked doing it. I was proud of it when it was done in September. And then when it became more work again, I'm like, okay, well, that's something I'm working on. And there's, it's work for me. And so it takes a while for me to divorce myself 
and I haven't had the opportunity to go back and like just listen to a bunch of old Goldsmith Odyssey episodes now that it's been four years since I edited The Cheaters and The Invaders and Hey Forked Freakin' Bill Hook. <laughs> that was an ordeal because you had that two recordings to do. It's my with. version of Slatkin, yeah. And so, mm-hmm. but I haven't, I, you know, I don't always get to go back and listen to them. So for me, they remain things that. I like Clark associates man on the beach with being hot and sweaty in a, in a cubicle. I associate them with the 30 or 40 hours it takes to put them together. Uh And, you know, the editing and the frustration with final cut pro being a really stupid program and, and editing glitches and all that stuff. So for me, so do you have any favorite episodes that Jens edited maybe that you don't have that relationship with? Well, that Jens edited, it's all the first year stuff. Well, he did some after the first year. He did interviews. He, he did, did interviews, uh, right? Well, he did Black Pat and not Black, Black Saddle. He did Black Saddle. Yeah. That's that's one mm-hmm. I'm probably. I mean, I don't know if it's our most great episode, but I'm super proud of it because it took the most work in terms yeah, of research it did. and like pulling it together. And you did those mini interviews with the band that got incorporated after we recorded and all sorts of stuff like that was a beast and i think it turned out as a really fun listen it's a massive production for sure and that's you know, and you're right it's you know the editing with jens and you pulling things together <laughs> and the weird interviews honestly of the jens edits it's justin freer in part because jens and i have sort of a different philosophy mine i don't have a does it need to be in if not cut it it's, does it need to be out? Does it need to be taken right. out? Right. And if yeah. not, if it's not uninteresting, great. It's a podcast. You can pause it. You can fast forward. You don't have to listen to it at all. You know, it's, there's no, it's not homework. If the, if the show is an hour or two hours or four hours, it's, if you want, if you enjoy it, great. Mm-hmm. And Jens is very much more like, I've got a four hour episode on Studs Lonigan that needs to go down to 90 minutes or whatever. So we're doing Justin Freer. And of course I'm, there in the conversations and listening at all the stuff we talked about thinking like Jens wants to edit this and philosophically what's going to happen. Well, I'll be honest. I don't know what Jens cut. I don't. So whatever he cut and I was there, I didn't miss it. Hmm. It was, it felt like the weekend and it felt like the conversation we had. I think the takeaway from this conversation on the whole is that we each, you know, our favorites, we like picking stuff that somebody else on the team did. Sure. Yep, probably, yeah. Mm. For me, it's often getting to experience it as a listener. Yeah, yeah, very much. You didn't work on it, so it's just a piece of entertainment. Yeah. And it's much easier to judge that way or to like that way. But I think it's also because we're just so damn humble. (laughs) Speaking for myself, there's probably not (laughs) anyone more humble, but I think you all are pretty darn humble as well. No, I think I'm more humble than you. Mm, I don't know. Pat's on the back all around. I'm probably the humblest, but that being said, for me, I don't, I don't edit, but you know, as a listener, it's just easier just as a fact for me to listen to stuff objectively and enjoy it fully when I'm not on it. All the self-consciousness or the, the second guessing or the whatever that comes with listening to yourself talk. And everybody has a version of that. That goes away and I can just enjoy the show. So it's easier for me to fall in love with an episode that I'm not on. Well, I, I want to give one more shout out to one that many people were on. And that is, I don't know if we've mentioned any spotlights, no Odyssey soundtrack spotlights, but 
the matinee one, which David got in touch with his friend Marshall, who got in touch with his friend Joe, and we had Joe Dante there with us, you know, for the first time talking to a director and editor who worked with Jerry on the film and hearing Joe Dante and Douglas Fake of Entrada go back and forth with their memories of the Cuban Missile Crisis and stuff was just so special. And I really feel like that one transcended what a spotlight could be. And we had some really in-depth ones before, like the Rio Conchos one with Doug and Take her, she's mine. Some some yeah. really great spotlights before that. But I still think that's maybe our best spotlight episode that we've ever done and really, really proud of it. And it feels like this is way more than just some cool promotional thing. This is yeah. recording history in an important way. That one, some mobile radar unit. So it's that one and that one. That one there, it's a muscle launcher. Man, that little thing can reach Cuba? That's the plan. See right over there? I got up on top of Denise Rogers last summer. Fellas, we need you out of this area. I'm gonna pull some trucks up in here. Uh, sure. And there's even a, uh, there's a cue Jerry calls mobilization, which kind of gets into his military action style. And so I had to point out in the liner notes, um, I was yeah sitting here reliving the fact that you put into the picture an actual scene that I experienced as a kid running across the beach, trying to look at Hawk missiles and having you know the MP saying, "Kids, go back home." So were you around at that time in Cocoa Beach? I well, no no I, I was not uh, I was in New Jersey where we were still scared. It's just that you know a nobody nobody was coming to sell their monster movie and b we didn't live right next to Cuba, but we did do a lot of research and that beach scene looks just like the photos that we found in the newspaper. I know, and I I've never seen anybody's movie where wait a second, you know that's us. That's us kids running across the street. Well, we were lucky to be able to shoot it in the actual place where uh, all this stuff took place. Otherwise, we would have shot it on a back lot or down in Malibu or something, and it wouldn't have worked. I mean, where did you get the Hawk missiles? I know it's kind of a trivial question, but... We made a deal with the uh, with the government. We got those are real missiles and stuff. Unlike Piranha, where the army was the villains, and we had a fake script that we gave to the army and made them the heroes so they would give us all the equipment. Uh, we didn't have to do that for this one because these guys were just doing their jobs. So I'm proud of that one. It was nice that, you know, Joe emailed and said that he was proud to be part. He said that. He said that we had we had recorded a great, it was a great document about a composer working with a director and that he was proud to have been part of the show, which is really, really nice to hear back. I, I was going to cite the Joe shows too. I edited them, but somehow I think just when there are eight people, it's just a little easier to think of it as something else. You know, it doesn't feel as much like, like the fact that I'm not as much a part of the talking makes it less of a me thing. I enjoy Joe. I enjoy Marshall. I enjoy Marshall like crazy. So he's a friend of mine. And, and I, I really enjoyed John. I really enjoyed Dan Goldwasser on the Burbs. I like both of our Joe shows. And I think mm -hmm. in part, if I'm proud of anything, I think I'm proud of the Trek thing. I'm proud of, but understand it has more to do with the opportunity than anything I should be proud of. I'm proud of the section in the Burb show where we go through the temp score versus the Goldsmith score because mm -hmm. Marshall emailed back and said, I don't think anyone's done that. 
Yeah. And I said, well, I don't think there are any others available. And I thought, well, wait, I got the work print of Blade Runner. The work print of Blade Runner only has wacky music in the last 10 minutes. Hmm. So he's right. The fact is we have, thanks to Shout Factory and Jens having it, we have the work print of the Burbs with the temp score and the two guys responsible for the temp score to walk us through it. I mean, how could I not take that opportunity? Yeah. And I like that section and I like that Marshall likes that section and that some other people listened and that that section is an interesting insight into film scoring only because we had the availability to do it. The guys come to get Tom Hanks to come out and play <laughs> and you have them coming in with like Marconi. And I seem to remember that Jerry was kind of reticent about doing that. Does that ring a bell, Joe? I mean, the, doing Marconi. Well, he he wasn't good at copying Marconi, and nor nor I think did he ever want to. But when given the the template and saying, "Well, this is this is sort of the kind of thing we want," he would try to do it without having it sound like he had copied that kind of music. Right. The only time it didn't work was in the scene where they go over to the Klopaks for the first time and. Um, they're marching toward the door and there's all these cuts of the different peaceful people's faces and zooming into their eyeballs, like more call like in Leone and stuff. And Jerry did this. Uh, we had temp tracked it with a piece from my name is nobody. Let's go. was a, a more coiny movie that Universal happened to distribute at the time. And um, Jerry must have tried three or four different comp compositions to fit into that space. None of them were as funny as the Morricone because it was it had been it had been cut to that kind of music and it had it hit certain it hit, it hit certain notes at certain points and um, and the fact that it was so recognizably not music that you would find in that kind of movie uh, made it very funny and and Jerry finally gave up he said you know I just I this is not going to be as funny with my music as it is with this music so you should probably use this and so we bought it. So I like the Dante shows too. Yeah. Uh, I think the, mat I, the matinee, because it's first and it's more lively and more comprehensive about Goldsmith because we had, you know, we really talked about everything that Joe and Jerry did together. And then, you know, the two standout segments in the Burb show are the temp score just because of the opportunity and the Looney Tunes segment because four people were there and, yeah, you that, know. That was special. I'm glad we made that happen, however briefly. Yeah. Because I know you and I have wanted to do a, a Looney Tunes show since beginning of 2021 when that came out. And, just couldn't have know, it. We had helped on the release for Verez, but it just never happened. Sadly, we didn't. We got distracted with other things. Is the truth. So yeah, there's so many things happening, and we're trying to keep a lot of plates spinning in the air. And sometimes stuff slips through the cracks like that. Or Seamus, which is such a great score and was a premiere, but we wanted to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So. And we never, you know, 
their regrets, stuff slips through the cracks, but I'm so happy when we can kind of rectify that to a degree. And we really did with Looney Tunes, getting them to reminisce a bit. Does anyone want to single out a surprise discovery along the way, either a score or a program that surprised you and and in a good way or a bad way, I guess, if you prefer, but, but David, or maybe David and Clark, you were both really blown away by Project Immortality. Is there anything like that or, or score-wise anything? I mean, Project Immortality is definitely one, just going very quickly, the, uh, the thriller episodes, uh, The Cheaters, Terror, Antiquewood, and Grim Reaper were all really pleasant surprises for me, in part because Thriller is a very kind of hit-and-miss show, uh, much more so than something like Twilight Zone. And if I had just started watching it and realized that hit-and-miss ratio, I probably wouldn't have stuck with it. But because, you know, the show forced me to, uh, I stumbled into these pretty wonderful hours of television. So those have been probably my favorite surprise discoveries. And uh, musically, 1,489 words has got to be it. Right out of the gate. Yeah, a ton of wonderful Goldsmith scores we've uncovered that I hadn't heard before doing the show, but it's just astonishing to me that he received such an extraordinary showcase and rose to the occasion with so much passion and skill that early in his career. Just incredible. So, yeah, that that still stands out as kind of the surprise discovery for me. Mm -hmm. Till now, on the stroke of midnight, cold on the stroke of midnight, the tip of one finger touched it. The trigger at least was hers. The tip of one finger touched it. She strove no more for the rest. Up she stood to attention with a barrel beneath her breast. She would not risk her hearing. She would not strive again. For the road lay bare in the moonlight, blank and bare in the moonlight. And the blood of her veins in the moonlight throbbed to her love's refrain. Yeah, that's the thing. If we're taking the whole five years, then, you know, we already did kind of a look back show, I think, after the first year. It was our 50s roundup. I feel like I would just be picking the same things I've already picked. But as far as stuff that has happened since, the score that has blown me away the most is Incident in the Middle of Nowhere. Ooh, yeah. Just absolutely amazing.
Yavar, love thy neighbor. That was going to go. That was going to say for score, incident in the middle of nowhere, but for episode, love thy neighbor from Gunsmoke just blew me away. Like I wasn't expecting it at all from the previous Gunsmoke episodes. And it was just another level. Like it's probably the highest level of television that we've seen so far for me. Hmm. Uh, And it's amazing that it did it with 25 minutes or something like that. Really? You take that over like the classic Twilight Zone episodes we watched, the invaders, stuff like that? Well, we're talking about biggest surprise. You know, oh, this, oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry, it just—it sounded like you were saying it was your favorite episode of television overall. Which I mean, it's close. I, I okay. but but yeah, we were expecting Twilight Zone to be good, and yeah, so yeah, I didn't really have expectations of Gunsmoke, and it met them. Huh? Yeah, love love thy neighbor exceeded the expectations I had had based on the previous episodes I'd seen. So it was okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> David, what about you? The surprise for music would probably be Late Date, just because mm-hmm. upon an initial, and when I got the Thriller DVDs and extracted all those scores before you guys were doing this even, I remember sampling that and going, oh, it's Nervous Man in a $4 Room Part 2. And by the time we covered it, I don't think Nervous Man in a $4 Room was on our minds. <laughs> it was so much of its own thing. And it's not just the just the work that went into it. It's as a listen, it's so enjoyably weird and complex. You know, and it's just all percussion all for the most part. I think that's the surprise for me of all of them. The one of the most unique scores we've covered. Yeah, it is. Not just in Thriller. It's very unique for Thriller, but in Goldsmith's output, too. It's practically his television Planet of the Apes. I have a surprise about the show. And I've said this behind the scenes to a lot of friends uh, this past year. The fact that Joe Dante is just a straight shooter. He's a really amiable guy, but he's also kind of a cranky guy sometimes. And he's got his own podcast and you can hear that. Like he just likes some things and some things he's just like, well, you know, that's Hollywood. And he's just a straight shooter. And when he joined us, I really misread and thought, boy, he just sounds like he's being a real good sport with us, but he'd rather be doing something else. And I, you know, and and I knew we only had an hour with him and he stayed an hour and 15, an hour and 25. Yeah, he went, he went longer. Yeah, and then he emailed back that he was super proud of the show. And I'm like, well, cool. And he was proud to be part of it. And he said, great job on your editing, David. He, well, he said that too. And then, uh, you know, Mike, it was hard to get Mike to join us just because of scheduling and stuff like that. And He's a busy guy. He's a busy guy. And when you said, I am about to hit my three-hour cap, he's like, yeah, I'll probably have to go too. He didn't. He stayed another two and a half hours. And, and, you know, a lot of that's just he and I at a certain point, we were just talking. And that's not in the show. It's not going to be. It was just 
personal stuff being people. And he had a good enough experience with that that he agreed to come back a week later and talk with Chris Malone and us about the fifth volume of Goldsmith at 20th. Yeah. When he had originally not, not wanted to do that, I think. And then, you know, when we talked to Justin, uh, it was, you may have him for a half hour. We got a schedule. You will be let in at this time. You will go to the rehearsal. You will be taken upstairs. Mr. Freer will come up. You will have a half hour. And then he will have other things to do. And then you can come see the show the next night. And Justin, on his own, stayed with us for two hours and 20 minutes. I mean, he was asking us questions at the end. And then he's like, you guys are coming back to the rehearsal tonight, right? And and then the next day, invited us to dinner. I mean, he enjoyed his time with us. Paul Verhoeven, that half hour, I'm certain, having listened to the edit... At the half hour point where Clark says, you know, well, Paul, we've hit your half hour. It's been really nice for you to join us. It's like, it's fine. I can stay a little bit longer, 10, 10 minutes maybe. And then he stayed a half hour. <laughs> that second half hour, he's down a little bit. Got some of the best stuff. It's some of the best stuff, but he was he was fighting COVID badly. I and, mean, you know, mm-hmm. folks, I cut a ton of coughing out and it was great. And he wanted to join us, even though he was still struggling with COVID because he had such respect for Jerry, which was wonderful. And he stayed an extra half hour, which made me feel good. All right. Well, that's almost now of material. Uh, do we need to do a final count for David since I wasn't in That earlier? would not be a bad idea, probably. Well, and the one yeah, thing I was thinking too count, is Yavar, I should do, I should record another intro, introing you, since I didn't know if you were going to be here, so I left you out. I mean, of I, the I intro made when it we did it right. I made it right when I, I can go. Sure, oh, yes, sir, you can go. I'm so sorry. Oh, yes, we don't mean to keep you here. Paul, yeah, we thought <laughs> yeah, you said bye. Uh, okay, bye-bye. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. It was so nice meeting you. Uh, bye. Bye. Thank you. Pleasure. Okay. So, so what I about? I can go. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> but I think that half hour wasn't Mr. Verhoven is busy. I think it was Mr. Verhoven shouldn't be talking to you. He has a hard time breathing. He's having a hard time not coughing, and he he lowered a little bit. But he wanted to stay. But he wanted to stay, and then Joe came back, mm-hmm. you know, and did another two hours with us. It hits me. I like a lot of the things we do on the show. I like that people, we don't have a huge listenership. We have a really good listenership. We even, I, I like our listeners. I like some of the people who email us. We talk to them. I like that Marshall listens and Joe, I know he may listen every now and then. I like that Carlos listened. We have a good listenership, but I think I'm most proud of the fact that it seems like people enjoy their time with us. And I'm very proud, I hate to say it, of the four of us for setting a really nice table, I think. That's been a discovery of mine because it never feels like that to me. I'm the last person to think people are having a good time hanging out with me. Yeah, you were sure Joe didn't have a good time. I really until thought he assured you. He, yeah. he out of the blue emailed you and said he did, basically. <laughs> and he did. And then Mike stayed and at the end said, and I think meant it, that he really enjoyed the interview. Justin clearly enjoyed his time with us. Paul clearly enjoyed his time with us. Joe came back. Carlos. Carlos, I mean, yeah. And he's coming back, I think, we hope. I mean, to me, I'm more proud of that than our productions. I'm more proud of the fact that we're not just PR, that we're an interview that people seem to enjoy having done once they do it. Shout out to all our interview guests and all of our guest co-hosts and all the people who have joined us on this odyssey and lent their voices to it. Mm Because 
they're really becoming part of the tapestry and they've given up their time. And oh, yeah. Thank you, all of you, all of the people who came on for spotlights or interviews or anything. You've enriched this journey immeasurably. Yeah. The composers you talk to and Neil coming in and Chris coming in and Mike's been on the show a couple of times now and Carlos and Lee and oh, Lee Phillips. Yeah. John Takas. And yeah. I mean, good grief, all these people who Jeff Bond. all we have to do is email Chris Malone and he's just like, of course. That is a thought I've had quite often is that, you know, it, it is kind of staggering when, when I think back about when we started the show and it was just the three of us and whoever was out there in podcast land listening. And now there's just kind of this huge extended family of Goldsmith Odyssey people and so many people who have contributed so much of their knowledge and time to the show. It's it's very kind of humbling to see that. Oh, yeah. Andy helping with Project Immortality and looking at music and giving us cues and then and he, mm-hmm. we haven't put it out yet but he's joined us for a show and people who've never been on the show who behind the scenes you know john burlingame is always helping yavar with when was this recorded and i mean mm-hmm. there are people whose voices we haven't yet heard and desperately want to who are still in the background just we can drop someone a question and they just they just help yeah. We're going to make that Carson Cohen. Oh my gosh, Carson, oh, yeah. who keeps yeah. giving us music that literally you're never going to hear. He's got sheet music and he can say, oh, here's the cue they didn't record for Shape of the River. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, Carson. Yeah. Are you kidding me? There have been so many people at this point. We're probably forget, forgetting, you know, so many people who have really contributed. Yeah, this is our Oscar speech. Got to give some credit here to Wes Decker for filling in really whenever it's an emergency and I don't have time and David doesn't have time and something needs to be edited. Wes has, without fail, always swooped in and been the savior for us on those projects. So Yeah, when when the schedule just, you know, two editors are not enough, he has saved our asses for sure. Yeah. There's a big red Wes button in the Goldsmith Odyssey office under a glass case. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, I I think this was a really fun episode, guys. So glad we made it happen. And it was nice to reminisce with you all. And hopefully we can talk to uh, Cameron Patrick in the future about his relationship with Jerry. But I think it's time for our contact info section. Do you want to take that on, David? Yeah. Um, contact info is, is pretty generic podcast stuff. Please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever version of it that you have right now at this point, or wherever you're listening to this, leave us a review. And I think they aggregate somewhere uh, magical. If you want to communicate with us directly, mail at goldsmithodyssey.com. We read them all. We reply to most of them, I think. And if we have time and we can fit it into a show like we did with Cameron Patrick's, you may read it on the air with your permission. Yes. Thanks to anybody who is still listening this deep into the show. <laughs> I am just glad that we were able to do a nice, short little radio episode for this one instead of a big, long <laughs> yeah, episode. It's nice to do a show <laughs> so. that's under an hour long. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. It's a good feeling. Just knock one out real quick. All right. Thanks all for joining. And next time on the Goldsmith Odyssey, we actually know what it's going to be because we've already recorded it before this one. We're talking with Andy of the Settling the Score podcast on Jerry Goldsmith's final feature length work for Playhouse 90, Shape of the River. Yay. Uh, And that's an episode about Mark Twain. That sounds cool. Mm Mm-hmm. You'd think. Yeah, I'd think. You, yeah. You would think. You would, yeah. 
I was looking forward to it, Jens. Yeah. Oh, if man. we had had the time to speak about our least favorite things that we've ever seen, mm-hmm. trust me, you would rather watch Man on the Beach any day. Is it going to be an enjoyable episode where I get to hear you suffer? No. I think it'll be an enjoyable episode in part because of Andy's presence adding something, yeah. but it is not the kind of thing that's fun to talk about like Aww. Man on the Beach yeah. was. <laughs> Lord expectations. But listeners, it's going to be an exciting, great episode. Don't worry, because we have Andy with us and he's going to spice things up. Mm-hmm. It's going to be fun. And, 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 and <laughs> a lot of music that wasn't in it. Right. Yes. Thanks Reconstructions. To, thanks to Carson Cohen yeah. uh, doing some MIDI restorations. So you are going to hear the special edition of Mark Twain's Shape mm-hmm. of the River. Exciting Goldsmith. Ha ha. <laughs>
in our cold.